So have you ever felt like the world is just kind of going nuts? Like seriously, like society has lost its mind. Well, the question is, what if it kind of has? Or, or what if a large percentage of it has, especially some of the people that are in power. Now, look, that's kind of a bold claim and we don't want to, we want to overly generalize here, but there's an interesting theory that is coming up, which seeks to explain, let's say at least in part, why it feels like American culture and maybe Western culture in general has gone so far off the rails so quick. And so that's what we're going to be discussing today. We're going to be talking a little bit about this idea of personality disorders, specifically cluster B personality disorders. And there's a very interesting video from Christopher Rufo that we're going to be analyzing today. So if you stick with us, we're going to explain a little bit about what these personality disorders mean. We're going to discuss a little bit about his theory and how it's infiltrated academia and perhaps society at large. And we're going to talk most importantly about whether or not we think this is true. And if it is, what can we actually do about it? All of this and more brought to you by Good Ranchers. Welcome, everyone. Just real quick, we were having some technical issues and uh, some electrical issues earlier. And so if the stream goes down in the first hour, we'll restart. If it goes down in the second hour, we're just going to keep recording and upload the whole episode on the MTA uh, channel. But thank you for bearing with us. Uh, if you haven't already, go down to the link in the description. Join our community chat. We'd love to get to know you there. And I'll just let you know that if this if this feed goes down, Hamilton's done. We're just done. <laughs> Hamilton works so hard to try to make all of this work because he's the only one sitting at this table that knows how. And then we give him so much crap when it does it. But he does a really good job. Well, as always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates for now. But other than that, a relatively good person. Reasonably, reasonably so. Not, not great, but I'm okay. And then we have my beautiful bride who is fantastic in all possible ways. Tina, queen of the bees. Thank you, honey. <laughs> you always build me up so big and I'm just like, yeah, it's just me. Actually, well, if you, if you really want to know the truth, we're talking about personality disorders. Okay, so this woman comes to me one day just out of the blue and says, I want to set up a matriarchal society where all the men are bred for a particular and unique purpose and then kicked out in the winter so the women can control all the resources. Yeah, she's a beekeeper. Anyway, we also have... <laughs> we also have <laughs> our resident historian, our political prognosticator, and mostly benevolent warlord in training, every time, Every time that you say for now, <laughs> you're pushing me towards some of these mental problems that we're about <laughs> to be talking about today. Oh, gosh. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Nick, I think this is going to be a fascinating episode. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm surprised we're talking about it. So this is going to be great. Well, I, and again, I, I think... One of the things we just want to say is a disclaimer right off the bat. We're not here trying to psycho psychoanalyze half the population or even individuals or whatnot. We thought this was a really interesting topic that Christopher Rufo, and, and for those of you who don't know, Rufo was one of the first people that really shed a lot of light on what was going on with respect to critical race theory inside not only academia, but in a lot of our public school systems. And when he first brought it up, he was, you know, the typical accusations, right? He's mean, he's bigoted, he's racist, he just doesn't want to talk about hard history. And then he started exposing some of of the ideas behind it and some of the thought that that has led to it. And we've discussed this on the podcast. We've discussed critical theory, not just critical race theory, but essentially he, he had, I think, the courage to stand up and, and call things for what was really going on. And that was important. And it caused a lot of people to attack him, but he showed up with the receipts over and over and over again. And this is one of the latest videos he's put out. And I, I think it's interesting. But the first question that we need to ask is, is there really, even if we, even if we have this impression 
that there's more mental illness or more personality disorders going on right now. We, we need to kind of look at the data and determine whether or not this is actually true. And I also want to make sure that we're trying to be as, you know, as Jordan Peterson likes to say, precise in our language. Just because someone has mental illness doesn't mean they have a personality disorder, right? Just because somebody might have traits that tend in a particular direction doesn't mean they have a personality disorder. Personality disorder is, is very, very specific. And we're going to try to, you know, make sure that we're, we're cautious in how we talk about this. Because again, we're not here to analyze analyze anybody or tell them that you're this or that. That's not the point of this. It's just to take a look at the overall thing that's going on in society and, and determine on whether or not there may be some connection. So let's go ahead and look at kind of our, our first graph right now to, to determine, you know, what's going on. So this is a graph that just displays a share of adults reporting system symptoms of anxiety and or depressive disorder. This is February, 2023. All adults is 32.3% of those surveyed. What's really interesting though, is, is as you get younger, the rates of depression and anxiety go up significantly. So 65 plus is right around at the 20% range, 50 to 64, 29%, 25 to 49, 38%, 18 to 24, 49.9%. Half of all Zoomers yeah. are suffering from depressive disorder or and or anxiety. Yeah. So, so half of them have a mental illness. And, and by the way, I think that we've got some stats that are going to um, that we're going to bring up in this episode. It's worth noting that it's not equally distributed between the two sexes. No, if it half isn't. of all it Zoomers isn't. have this. That tells me that it's probably like sixty or seventy percent of of women in that eighteen to twenty four range. Well, let, let's go. Let's look at a couple more graphs before we start going, you know, too far here. So let's look at the next one. This one is one that we've actually shown before. This was from Pew American Trends Panel. Uh, this was taken in March 19 through the 24th in 2020. And here's what it showed. And this actually kind of broke it down, not just by um, gender and age, but it also broke it down by kind of political ideology or, or general political and ideology. as we all knew already, the left is has a lot more mental, well, mental illness. <laughs> Than we do. The further left you go, because even moderates are are higher than conservatives. Well, and, and again, and then, I, I and then you get to white liberals. And uh, well, I mean, I guess maybe maybe telling people that you should hate yourself so much because you're white and you, you know, can't it doesn't matter that you can't help your skin color. You're still on the hook for everybody that came before you. Uh, it's amazing what that does to the human psyche. Well, when you look at this, it says the, the question asked was, has a doctor or other healthcare provider ever told you that you have a mental health condition? And what you see is they, they broke it down by white conservatives, white moderates and white liberals. And within the white conservatives, you know, at, at 65 plus it's, it's less than 6%. Um, when it goes to 50 or 64 women are at about 20% men are at eight, 30 to 49 white conservative, um, women are at 26% men are at seven, 8%, 18 to 29 white women are at 27% white men at 16.3. Um, once you go over to, to white moderate, those numbers, you know, in, increase, uh, subtly, but it's, it's not a major distinction. You, you, you definitely see more within males, white, moderate males, um, than you do in white conservatives, but the younger too. Yeah. You see a big jump in the 18 to 29 and 30 to 49 range, especially among women compared to their conservative. Yeah. Does, does this mean that like when men are like, yeah, that, that woman was crazy. Does this mean they were right? Like, look <laughs> at us women. 
what is wrong? Why are we so crazy? Look at, look at, just look at the stats. I like, how do you no, argue no, with that? No comment whatsoever. Your like, grandmother's I, doing I, I, fine though. Yeah. Grandma's fine. Grandma's fine. It's, but well, here's the, here's the major distinction, right? White conservative versus white liberal. So those, those are the two numbers that we're going to look at uh, for right here. So if you're a, a white conservative, it's 65. If you're a woman, 6%. Um, if you're a man, 4%. If you're a white liberal at 65, for women, it's 15%, and for men, it's 15%. So it's almost evenly spaced between mental health, between white liberals at 65 plus. When you look at 50 to 64, okay, so 50 to 64, white conservatives, 20% of women, 8.2% of men. White liberals, 26% of women, 18% of men. All right, <clears throat> 30 to 49, white conservative women, 26, white conservative men, 7.8. White liberal women, 39.7%. White liberal men, 297 And here's just where it just goes off the charts. 18 to 29-year-old white liberals, 56% of women have been told by a doctor or healthcare provider they have a mental health condition. 33% of men. This is compared to 27% and 16% for white liberal conservatives. Or excuse me, white conservative uh, women and men. So there, there's we're, we're talking about the numbers almost double, almost double within the youngest age bracket. All right, so let's go ahead and go to the, the next graph here. This is another one, U.S. teens with major depression. Now, here's one thing I want people to look at because I, I think this is important. Whenever you talk about instances of, of depression, everyone just assumes, oh yeah, COVID, right? So, so 2020 and on, that's going to be where you get, you have a big jump, a big jump. In, in depression in both boys and girls post-2020. But here's what's nuts. This doesn't start in, in 2020 for girls. It starts in 2011. Like, 2011, all of a sudden you see this massive jump from about 12%. And then from 2011 to 2013, it jumps up to over 15%. By the time you get to 2016, you're at like 20%. By the time you get to uh, 2020, you're at 25%. This is before COVID. You're at 25%. And then it goes up to 30% after COVID. So COVID exacerbated a trend that was already taking place um, long before. What I find fascinating is that for girls, it's higher than boys. But when you look at the rate of increase, boys are actually going increasing faster than than girls are so so girls have have experienced 145 percent increase since in major depression since 2010 do we know what triggered this like what what happened what coincided at this time so there's all it's it's not quite a, a, a an overlap but I mean, I think that we all kind of know where this is going. By by the way, actually, for the audio listeners, for boys, the increase was 161 percent. Yeah. Um, although by the time that you get to the post COVID era, basically to today, the number of what's what's incredible, actually, is that the number of boys with major depression is where girls were at in like 2010. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's just girls, over it's 10, just, just over 10% for teen boys. And it's around 30%. And this is as of 2020, right? This chart doesn't even go yeah. past 2020. It's, it's, it's higher now. Um, let's look at one more chart. And then we got one more one to look at here. Um, this is, this is basically a, another version of, of the Pew chart that we looked at originally between women and men and then conservatives and liberals. And, and, and what you see is that it, again, it's just a young 
<laughs> both young and men and women are, are suffering um, from, from heightened degrees of mental health issues. There's, there's three things that strongly correlate with having a mental health problem right now. It's young, female, and liberal. Those are the three things. Each of those three things, in the younger you are, the more liberal you are, and if you're a woman, those are the three things that yeah. that that are strongly, strongly correlated with having a mental health problem. Yeah. And I, I mean, in fact, there was um there was a chart that I sent. I don't know if we actually have it in the links. We don't necessarily need to bring it up if we don't. But there was a chart that I sent that pointed out, and it's something similar. Um, the text in it pointed out that young female mental health problems and radical leftism are so correlated as to basically be the same. And I mean, looking back at the the chart with the um, uh, teenagers, when I was in high school, I was in high school from 2008 to 2012. When I was in high school, I noticed in like the last like two years, my my junior and senior year of high school, especially like 2011, 2012, especially 2012, that there was there was a, a higher uptick in the number of, of like, you know, students, you know, in in my graduating class that were were dealing with some of these problems that later started to manifest themselves in a big way when I went to college. I went to college with actually quite a few people that I went to high school with. And um, what I noticed was, is that it wasn't the men um, that, that were, were grappling with a bunch of mental health problems when they went to college. Usually the men were grappling with with poor grades because <laughs> we've talked about before that, that, you know, boys usually struggle in school far more than, than girls do. But it was, it was the women that I went to high school with and then college with that were the ones that were, were like constantly depressed or constantly again, dealing with mental health problems. And I kept thinking like, why mm -hmm. I struggled at the time I struggled to like, you know, because I was a guy, I, I struggled to to necessarily like relate to like why they were going through some of these problems. And then this thing popped up in, I would say like 2014, 2015, which was my last two years of college. So now you're, you fast forward like four years later. So my junior and senior year of college, this thing started popping up on campus and I didn't know what to call it at the time. But looking back in retrospect, I know exactly what to call it. It was the great awakening. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that, that that is absolutely contributed to, to to much of this problem. Yeah. Real quick, I want to get a question in from Harrison on the MTA chat. He said, could the inflation in the numbers be due, due to more people seeing therapists or the therapist classifying more mental illness? I, I think that's a great question. And, and that's something that I, I've looked at this. It's, it, you know, we've, <laughs> somebody got mad at me once where I said, you know, we, we put so much emphasis on mental health issues, which seems completely appropriate. But I, I also have to wonder if we've also created a perverse incentive in diagnosing everything as a mental health condition. And, and again, I don't claim to be an expert on this. I'm just looking at what I'm kind of observing around me. It seems like the additional emphasis on it hasn't necessarily led to decreased instances of it. Now, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But is, is anybody is anybody telling me that they think that the country is in a better mental health situation now than it was 20 years ago? I, I certainly don't think it is. The numbers certainly don't reflect that. And, and is anybody going to tell me that that's because we have less mental health awareness now, less mental health resources now than we did 20 years ago? I, I don't think that's true either. 
And so I'm, I'm not saying that, oh, if you have more doctors, you have more sickness, right? Like that's not my, my claim necessarily. I do think it's a, a worthwhile question to ask that, okay, if we're seeing a, a, what seems to be a significant increase, I, I think it's fair to ask that, okay, well, have the solutions that have been offered been working? Is it getting better? And it doesn't seem to be. But again, I don't I don't know if that's I, I feel like part of this and we're going to go into Chris Rufo's video on this. I think part of it stems from the fact that we have created a society where we elevate victim status more than we elevate like uh, accomplishment or overcoming something. And, and so when you, when you elevate victim status, which again, you can look at this from a very sympathetic viewpoint and say, obviously, if someone's a victim or if somebody is struggling with something, we want to give that person help. We want to make sure that they're, you know, we're protecting them. But when you, it, it is a fine line between saying, this is something that we should be concerned about and try to assist with. And this is something that should get all the, if you have this, you get all the attention. If you have this, you're stunning and brave. If you have this, you know, you're, you're, so it's almost like we now cause uh, certain certain types of mental illness to be a form of identity, and so now that it's Absolutely. your identity and, it, and you're wrapped up in it, and you gain certain um, what do you call privilege status? Yeah, you gain certain. But um, one one question is: Is there anything in the you know field of like psychotherapy or, or, or psychology or whatnot that has actually like, have any of the parameters changed in order to encompass more people? Could that also contribute to this? Um, you know, there's like a lot of questions to ask you. It doesn't all happen in a vacuum. You know, I was asking Brian Betts because this is kind of his, uh, this field, is his yeah, field. Yeah. And so I was hoping he would join the the chat over here and he is in there. And I asked him what he thought um, the reason for the spike was. And he said, if he had to make a guess, it might be a lot of people who are realizing that they can't obtain or, or can't um, realize everything that, that it has been promised to them by their parents or by uh, That gets into something that I was telling Nick right before we turned the cameras on. And, and may, I'm going to save it until later in the episode, but I, I do think that, okay, absent of some of the loaded language that people, like Great Awakening, Wokeism yeah, yeah, and stuff like that, yeah. because people already have kind of formulated in their minds what that means, mm-hmm. and it's either good or bad. And so then a lot of times they'll just stop listening to you at that point. Yeah. So absent that stuff, I do think that there is a very strong case to be made. And there was a there was a journal article that I discovered that we did include in the links for this show that there is something that the university system, not just the university system, but also in many respects like arts and entertainment, many of the things that we've talked about that make up the Leviathan or the cathedral, actually. I, I do think that there's something that's being pushed within those that is is encouraging the growth of these mental illnesses among specific groups of people that just so happen to be more politically aligned with the left or more younger than other generations or yeah. more towards women than men. And the other thing that I want to bring up is this isn't something to like gloat about. No. Yeah. We're all on the right to varying degrees on this podcast. But, but the reason that we're talking about this today is not for us to sit here and be like, Oh, we're better people than our left-wing counterparts because we don't have mental illnesses and they do No, the reason we're bringing this up is because you cannot have a stable society where half of the country 
it's looking like based on the the age breakdown, it's half of 18 to 24 year olds, right? When those people get older, you can't have a stable country or stable society when half of your country is suffering from mental illness mm-hmm. and specifically some some types of mental illnesses that, that you brought up to, to me and Tina that are really, really destructive. Yeah. The the last thing that I want to bring up, and maybe this is a question that that Rufo could get to or maybe you can get to when we play his video is one theory that a lot of people in the chat have brought up. And I think it's a very, very valid theory that might potentially explain some, but not all of the problem is a lot of this doesn't just align with the the emergence of the Great Awakening. A lot of it also aligns with the emergence of social media. Yeah. 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 Like there was one comment from Scott the Celt who tagged me directly and said, when did mass social media take off? And then immediately after that, some other person said, this is almost perfectly aligned with when Facebook went mainstream. Yeah. And there's so many yeah. comments from people saying the same thing about when did Twitter or now X become yeah. a major phenomenon? What about the rise of Instagram? What or even TikTok. about the rise of YouTube? I'm, I'm old enough to have had a MySpace page. <laughs> well, I saw somebody on Instagram reels cause I don't do TikTok, but, um, but it's, they're basically TikToks. It's the same thing. Um, just slightly, you know, different algorithms or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, I did see somebody that said, you know, they're starting to wonder, and I'd like to get um, like Brian's opinion on this if he, you know, if he would. Um, Now, starting to wonder if people know too many tragedies Mm. because you're learning about tragedies from everybody around you through social media. And we know so much more about so many more things now. And a lot of it is very, very tragic. And is that bad for the human mind? You know, I wonder, you know, well, tragic and out of your control, it's out of your control. There's nothing you can do about it, but you know about it. So you're, you have anxiety over it or, or it's just on your mind. It's weighing heavy on you. And I wonder how much of that is is hurting the human mind, the fact that we know so many tragedies that are not our own that we can do nothing about. And um, and I think that the world of social media is, is I th- in my opinion, and I, I have no scientific reason to think this, yeah. but it appears to me like it really coincides heavily with social media, especially the video-driven social media where, um, you know, Every time you're flipping through social media, you you find somebody that goes, oh, here's how you know you're talking to a narcissist. And this yeah. is the narcissist. This person's a narcissist. And then they're like, oh, oh what's the other term? Um, uh, Toxic. No, there's, there's a trauma, trauma, uh, trauma, trauma. Like yeah. they just constantly talk trauma or they talk about neurodivergent. You're neurodivergent. And so you just constantly are inundated. Oh, here's an ADD thing, another ADD thing. And I get filled up with all the ADD stuff since I have ADD. Um, but it's, it, you know, because I'll linger on it and actually listen to what they're saying. And the algorithm knows that Tina's interested in, in ADD stuff now. And, yeah. and so usually, you know, you're just kind of watching it to go, do they get this right? Is this right? Well, sometimes it's right. But what I wonder is how much of this is people scrolling through and like self-diagnosing? You know how um, people will have like something going on and they'll Google what's going on with their body (laughs) and they'll be absolutely sure that they're dying and they'll go to their doctor and they'll be like, I think I have X, Y, and Z. And the doctor's like, I think I have testicular cancer. Well, ma'am, I don't think you do. (laughs) (laughs) In 2020, nowadays you would be attacked for being transphobic for saying that. In 2023, maybe you do. But um, so 
that is my question is how heavily does social media and like everybody else's opinion of this, like I'll scroll th- through and see girls with Tourette syndrome doing their ticks on there and stuff. And then all of a sudden you've got more, more Tourette's people, more ticks. And, um, and, and one interesting thing is some of the medication used for ADHD can cause Tourette syndrome too. And so I wonder, you know, some of this medication, could it be causing other things? And then also how much of a social contagion is at, you know, at play here with all of this video driven social media? Yeah. Quick comment on that. I think that when Facebook hit the scene, it was the first time when people were able to create a um, curated persona of themselves. Mm -hmm. They were able to, Take a hundred photos, mm-hmm. choose the best five, post one a day. Photoshop it. Photoshop <laughs> it, grade it, whatever. They could take a photo at the beach on their vacation. And they built this online persona that represented the best aspects of their life. But when they were home on the couch, they were exactly who they were before. And I think that there is a depressing um it's it's kind of depressing to know that you're attempting to build this persona of yourself that's not true. Yeah. Um Okay, I want to get to a super chat right quick from Star Moon. He said, could you possibly do an episode about how the left is weaponizing autistic minds for their own gain and forcing the disabled to support the state even if they don't want to? I feel that this is related. That, that's, an, that's an interesting topic. This is something that I've, I've <laughs> it's kind of personally affected me in a, in a couple of ways. I, I have two uh, cousins that were diagnosed with, with autism. And um, I mean, just just in just in, incredible, <laughs> incredible people, both of them. And, um, and it's fascinating because my, my aunt actually had to fight all the way up to the California state Supreme court to be able to get them, um, educational opportunities outside of the public school system. The public school system fought her tooth and nail because it was like, well, no, no, we provide those services. And the Supreme court eventually ended up saying that, well, yeah, the state says they provide that service. It, it fits within the larger category. And so you can't use that funding for this other, this other service, this other mechanism. And so it was something that I, I, you know, I, I kind of witnessed her go through on some level and also the difference on, and, and how great it was for my cousins to be able to have access to, to an educational environment that was just doing so much better for them than what the state was offering. And, and I, I had this, we had a bill come up within the general assembly where they were going to require medical insurance to cover, um, you know, different treats with autism up to the point of like 23. And my problem with it was not that I didn't want treatment for autism. My problem was, was the government was not actually providing anything. The government was just going in and mandating private companies to do something. I said, well, no, what you're going to do is you're going to cause insurance costs to go up again and people are not going to know why they went up, but it was because the government interfered in this and this isn't the proper way to do it. You're, you're essentially hiding the cost with this. You're pretending like you, you know, it's all on the company. I said, this is not it. You, you are lying to people about what you're actually doing. And I'm not going to support it. And of course it was, Oh, well, you don't like autistic children. And, and as you can imagine, that was fairly offensive to me. Um, so I, I do think that there is an issue. I, I don't know that it's again, trying to be as generous as I possibly can to people that have different viewpoints on this. Some people see the state as the primary mechanism for solving these issues. I do not. Um, and I do think it's wrong when people create it, when people create a narrative as if it's an either or proposition where you have to do it through the state. And if you don't want to do it our way, then you don't care about these people that, and I think that's what you're talking about. And I do, I, I disagree with that. And I think it's, um, I think it can be horribly manipulative, 
Um, and I've had people tell me that like, well, I guess I'm going to have to tell, you know, my kids that you don't support them. I'm like, well, you, you could do that. It would be a lie. It would be a lie. And so I, I do think, but it is also on us to also talk more about, okay, how would we do this? How, how would, what is our response to this, to this issue? Because it is a genuine issue. And so I think, I think that's the way you do it. Look, I'm going to tell you right now, like I, I had, uh, I was thinking about what was going to be my clever transition into good ranchers today. And I, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm not going to do anything like that. And the reason why is because I, I actually want to be respectful of this topic. Right. And I don't want to try to transition from mental illness or something else into a good ranchers ad. So I'm just going to tell you that, again, we appreciate good ranchers sponsoring this show and us being able to talk about issues like this, which I think are on a lot of people's minds. And so we're really appreciative, not only for their sponsorship, but also for the fact that they produce an incredibly good product. And I know one of the issues that's become incredibly important to our family is knowing a lot more about the sort of food that we're eating. Because if you do look at some of the issues that have come up with respect to just general health, whether it be mental or physical or whatever else, what you eat matters. And what has gone into the products that you eat matters. And there's a lot of Americans waking up to the idea that if we look around the world, there's a lot of things going into American food products that are kind of banned or illegal in other parts of the world. And I think it's important more and more to many of us to make sure that when we do business with someone, that we're not doing business with a company that hates us. We're doing business with a company that provides a good product. And from a health perspective, we want to know that the food that we're consuming, we, we, can, be, we can have a, a high degree of confidence that the food that we're consuming is going to be healthy for us. And Good Ranchers has done an excellent job teaming with American farmers, American ranchers, in order to bring you incredibly quality beef, poultry, pork, and now wild caught seafood. So if you were loving the, if you were loving the turf and you were wondering where the surf was, Good Ranches is actually delivering. If you use promo code Nick, you're going to get a $25 off. Plus you're going to get free shipping. And plus now if you sign up for a subscription, which again, you can sign up for the subscription. You can set the, the times you want in it. You can pause it if you need to. You sign up for that subscription. You're going to get with each monthly order, you're going to get an additional two pounds of ground beef absolutely free with the order. And as we've mentioned before, for those of us that are concerned about inflation, which should be all of us, Good Ranchers will lock you into that price for two years. That is saying something right there. So please take a look at Good Ranchers. Use that promo code, Nick. Go to get, get a good deal. Get it delivered right to your door. Promise you, you're not going to be disappointed. We've all tried it and loved it. All right. I don't know about y'all, but Eating steak does make me happy. Okay, now for a super chat. Uh, Michelle says, I think one of the problems you're overlooking is the dichotomy between people with really medical diagnosis and socially adopted self-diagnoses. I think we covered that with the WebMD. No, well. I, yeah, I agree. I, I don't, this is, again, we wanted to be really careful of this is, is we're not just trying to make this out to be a, a simple thing where a, a few people can watch YouTube videos and then, you know, render expert opinions yeah. on this. Um, I think you're right, but, but... I think what Tina was bringing up was when you, when you look at the prevalence of social media, you do have a lot of people over there that are offering, offering advice on things that they may not be qualified to in any you know, way, shape, or form. Now, one of the things that I, I want to make sure that we also clarify here, we, have a, we generally have a big problem with this idea that the experts say, okay, what makes you an expert and what is the argument that you're using? Because if, if you're an expert because you have a bunch of letters after your name, you know, PhD, whatever it is, that's great. 
And, and I used to trust that a great deal. I am less trustworthy of it now because of the way many of those people with those letters after their name have behaved both within academia and within the practical world. I'm sorry, but doctors that are cutting off the, the healthy appendages of young children to help them transition, I don't care what your credentials are at that point. And so I, I don't want to go so far as to say, well, if an expert made the diagnosis, it must be good. I, I want to look at the core of, can we look at this logically? All right. Obviously we, we should be doing, you know, we should be doing um, scientifically based studies and we should be open to hearing, you know, um, you know, contradictions and, and counter evidence to those studies and making these diagnoses. But to Tina's point, when you have a lot of people out there getting attention, not because they've done a great job of overcoming a difficulty or a challenge, but because they've made that challenge their entire identity. And all of a sudden that person is, is famous and getting contracts and everything else. There is a social contagion component of this. And, and even people that are solidly on the left, like Bill Maher have come out and said, yeah, this, there's something wrong here. This doesn't make sense. And so the social contagion thing I think is very real. And, and there are academic studies to back that up as well. Real quick. I just want to thank Joe W for the super chat band eight, four, eight for the super chat and star moon as well. We have a lot of questions rolling in everyone. We're going to try and get to them. We'll probably have to save quite a few for the end of the show, uh, but we're going to do our best to get to all your questions. Okay. Speaking yeah. of questions, yeah. the big question that I feel like is kind of like an overarching one for for this episode is we've talked about like some of these potential reasons why you see a rise in mental illness but even though i think that social media has exactly I, I, I think social media has played a catalyst in exacerbating the problem rather than necessarily being the cause of the I problem itself I think that social media is a vehicle through which mental illness has become a bigger problem for people rather than necessarily the source of the mental illness. Yeah. I don't think Facebook is making you depressed. I think Facebook is making that depression become exacerbated in a way that manifests itself in, in a very public sense. Same thing with Instagram. I don't think that Instagram is making narcissists. Yeah. I think that Instagram is attracting narcissists. Well, okay. So let me, let me, <laughs> let me say this. This is, this is an interesting component. We're going to, we're going to, Use By the this. way, Nick, the reason that I asked this yeah. is because social media being the end all be all for why we have a mental health crisis does not explain why women, younger Americans and liberal Americans are the ones that are suffering from it more, more than conservatives. Why is there a again, the, the correlation is so strong that it can't be ignored. There's overwhelming evidence that young female liberals are the ones that are suffering from this far more than any other group. Why is it so skewed towards the left, towards women, towards younger Americans than anybody else? If it was just social media, it would be anybody who uses social media would be more likely to be depressed. But you see, you don't see such a huge skew like that. So, well, so I, I, like I said, I don't think that that explains the whole, the whole I, problem. I think it's, we talk about this a lot where we talk about conditions and then catalysts. Um, social media, I don't think is, I, I think it's wrong to say, well, social media is the problem. Social media is, I think, a morally neutral thing. It can be used for good. It can, it can be used for bad. I think one of the reasons why social media probably impacts younger people far more than it does maybe someone of my age is because I grew up without social media. The idea that you could take a picture on your phone was not even something I considered in high school, right? It wasn't a thing. Yeah, I remember, I remember thinking that it was such a far-fetched idea that someday, like they would talk about, oh, someday we'll be able to see each other's faces on the phone. 
And I'm like, I don't think that's ever going to happen. That's like magic. No way. And now. And now we're live streaming. Now yeah. we're live streaming and we can FaceTime and things like that. But I wanted to bring up one more what, what, little. Yeah, go ahead. I got to answer a question here, but yeah, go ahead. Okay. I wanted to bring up one more little thing. And that is um, social media, just not even just what you're seeing on social media, but it's also, I think, um, messing with like our, our, how we get our dopamine hits and yeah. things like that. And, and so even if whatever you're watching or whatever you're scrolling or reading is positive, um, it's like an instant gratification thing that we, yeah. we get used to. And, and I do think that it's really starting to train our minds toward a certain, a certain way. Um, and, and so I don't think, I think the videos, I think video driven um, has caused it to really come to a head even more yeah. than uh, when it was just, oh, we're looking at pictures or we're reading. Um, now everything's so, you know, the short, short form, you know, it's almost like the Twitter version of, of video content. Yeah. It's this short, I'm just going to flick it away and keep going. And I don't even have the attention span to wait till the end of the video to see what the payoff is. I'm just bored of it now. Boom, mm -hmm. boom, Or you don't want to waste your time. Well, yeah. And I think, so Brian brought this up too, where he said he, he begs to differ. He thinks that social media really has rewired our minds in a way that we have an attention span shorter than a goldfish now. So let, let me caveat my statement. The, the problem that I have with saying social media is the problem is that I, I look at something like social media as a platform. It doesn't have to be used in the ways that it's being used. Now, I, I completely understand and sympathize with the fact that it is being used that way and it, it, has, it is having adverse effect. But I, I almost look at it kind of like, <laughs> to use something completely separate, but to, to illustrate a point here, violence. Is violence good or bad? Totally depends on the situation. Totally depends on the context. Totally depends on who's using it against who and under what conditions. So can social media be used for positive things? Absolutely. Absolutely. It can be used for positive things. Can it also be used for negative things? Yes. Are we at a point right now where it's probably the on, on the cost benefit analysis might not be adding up? That is a good question that I don't know the answer to. I think that certain platforms are probably doing that more than other platforms. I, I just, but it's an and, interesting and question. You with your coffee mug reels and us on this podcast are trying to have a positive impact that also encourages people to get their dopamine from spending time with friends and family and investing in the good things in life. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's go ahead and transition a little bit. So I, I think, I, I hope we've kind of made a case that yes, mental health issues are on the rise. It is specifically affecting certain groups and certain different demographics more than others. There does seem to be both a, a connection with respect to youth as well as ideology. Um, the, the ideology cannot be separated here. And so the next thing I want to go into is in preparation for us watching this video is differentiating between a personality trait and a personality disorder. Because as, as Tina was pointing out, somebody can have a personality trait that like leans toward the narcissistic without being a narcissist, a full-blown narcissist. So for instance, this is according to John, Johns Hopkins, for people without a personality disorder, personality traits are patterns of thinking, reacting, and behaving that remain relatively consistent and stable over time. People with a personality disorder display more rigid thinking and reacting behaviors that make it hard for them to adapt to a situation. And, and and if anybody is wondering where we're kind of getting the information for the personality disorders and the clusters that we're going to be talking about, it comes from what they call the DSM-5TR. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. There was also a lot of show prep that was done where we there's a, a, a group called Med Circle 
where they did a good job of this. Obviously, Jordan Peterson also talks about some of the personality disorders that we're going to mention as well. So that's that's kind of where we got the the base of of a lot of what we're talking about. Um, do we, we have a couple more super chats? Let's go to those before we go into the clusters yep. here. Really appreciate these super chats. We have one from Evil Liar Projects and Builds. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but it would seem this social media highlight traits to a disorder in an attractive light versus the actual mental breakdown of a person with this disorder. Point of glorification of the traits. Thoughts. I know. I, I can think. Do you need me to reread that? No, no, I, I'm, I'm reading it to you. It's that, evil layer, by the way, yeah. not liar. Not evil My layer. bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to say, I, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's correct. Um, it, it, what, what we've, it, it, it's amazing to me that some of the things that get you incredibly popular on social media um, are, are things that we used to look at as these are challenges to overcome. They're not identities to embrace. Yeah. Right. The, the, the personality that may be a negative manifestation of a personality trait was something that we were trying to overcome or, or dysphoria was something we were trying to overcome. And now it's become the personality. It's become the, there was this, there was this, we, we did a, we did a whole uh, podcast episode on it once. There was this recruitment video for the CIA where the woman they put in the recruitment video for the CIA was talking about, the mental health issue she had been diagnosed with. That's actually in the video we're about to in show. In the video. I mean, it was just, we're looking at this going, this is something we're, we're like highlighting. Now you could argue, well, no, they were just demonstrating that somebody that struggles with this could also work at the CIA. Okay. Is that really what you're going to put in a recruitment video? Because is that really who you want to bring in? Like people who are really struggling with uh, their reality, yeah. their perception of reality and things like that. Do we really want them? It's like, ladies and gentlemen, this is how wars start. Right, the, the CIA has yeah. certain jobs to do, and if they're not doing them correctly, because the people that are doing them are struggling with certain things it's that could same, adversely affect their decision making. It's capacity. the same reason why you don't want someone who's colorblind to be your electrician necessarily. <laughs> uh, that's all I'm saying. It's it's <laughs> the like the same reason why someone who's colorblind might not want to be an electrician. I do know a colorblind electrician though, yeah. um, and he's great. But um, but it is something they have to overcome in order to do it, and so they find other ways to make it yeah. to, to to overcome that problem. But um, that's what I'm saying is I'm not saying that somebody has less value because of a disorder, but I am saying it does not make you the best candidate, just like a colorblind person who's working with wires. Yeah. It's, it doesn't make them the best candidate to know which wire to connect to with which wire, you know, but Tina to question the, the political decision-making of people who suffer from mental illnesses is very dangerous for our democracy. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> right, do we and and a lot of these things can really be situational as well. Like we were taught, I was talking to Brian Betts in the chat a little earlier and he was talking about, you know, there are certain temporary situations that they will give medication for, which is a little different than like a clinical diagnosis. They get like a temporary diagnosis to get through something. Yeah. But I, um, I do, I do get really concerned that oftentimes we are treating these symptoms and never getting to the bottom of what's causing it and trying to change the behavior to get, to get it, you know, dealt yeah. with because, um, and I do think that there's a really big difference between somebody that has something going on mentally where something's seriously not connecting and they're not able to alter their course. They're not able to change their behavior because there is something mentally blocking them from being able to comprehend that they need to change behavior. Um, and, and sometimes I think medication is very good for that. We know, we know people who 
are much better off if, if they're on their antipsychotics or yeah. whatnot. Yeah. Well, and so let, let's talk real quickly about the, the three clusters that we're going to talk about here before. So we, we, we articulated the difference between a personality trait and a personality disorder. And these are the three personality disorder clusters. You have cluster A, B, and C. So, and this, I actually heard a, I actually heard a psychologist say this, so I'm not saying this to be mean. She said the way we remember this in school when we were learning it was you had the mad, the bad, and the sad. And the way she described it was cluster A is kind of the odd eccentric cluster. So this includes paranoid personality disorder, schizoid personality disorder, uh, schizotypical or schizotypal uh, personality disorder. And so again, I think those, I think most people kind of have some idea of, of what that constitutes the paranoid, um, you know, uh, schizophrenic style personality disorders, uh, cluster B, which we're going to talk about a little bit more in depth. So I'm going to skip to cluster C right now. That's the anxious and fearful, right? Avoidant personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So that's why, again, just when she says mad, she doesn't mean like angry. She needs, you know, the kind of that mad professor look like that, crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and then the sad, right? That anxious, fearful cluster B is, is what we're going to get into for the, the video, because this is, this is kind of Rufo's theory on what's going on. And this includes antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, uh, histrionic personality disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder. And in this chart, that's described as dramatic and unpredictable uh, cluster. One of the things that, as we were reading up on this, um, a, a, a thing that kept coming back over and over and over again when describing cluster B um, and, and specifically some of the things with borderline that we'll talk a little bit more was this idea of impulsivity um, and not being able to control one's impulses. And then this idea of, you know, it, it impacting the relationships to such a degree to where a lot of their behavior almost like, like borderline personality, for instance, has this tremendous fear of abandonment. And some people will say, well, you know, we're, you know, we're all, you know, a little bit maybe worried of being left by the people that we love or, or whatnot. They're like, no, you don't understand. This is so debilitating that their, their fear of abandonment is such that they will, um, you know, overvalue or not overvalue, but increase the value of a particular person in their life that they see kind of necessary to their own existence. And then just as quickly devalue them in, in a point where some people was, oh, so like bipolar, like, no, it's, it's. <laughs> You have to understand that it's so debilitating that they cannot maintain relationships. Their like a self-sabotage. Their fear of abandonment leads them to engage in activities which almost cause the abandonment, like makes the abandonment certain. Um, and then like the the narcissistic personalities. You know, I'm not going to go into it here because I think the video does a better job of kind of a, doing a, a good summary of each one. But I just wanted people to understand that there, there are three clusters. And because you know, when we're sitting here talking about B cluster, you're, my first thought was, what's A cluster? So that's what it is, right? Those mm -hmm. those are the various clusters. The other thing with the antisocial too is that we'll talk about. Um, Jordan Peterson basically said that a lot of people see borderline personality disorder is kind of like the female version of antisocial uh, personality disorder. You're, and one of the things that they wanted to clarify in antisocial, antisocial doesn't mean you don't like crowds, right? Antisocial doesn't mean, oh, you're just more introverted. Antisocial in the sense that there, there's almost like this, this animosity um, toward other people or toward the systems or toward the rules or this belief that the rules shouldn't apply to you. Um, a lot of people that you have in jail for violent crimes, you know, to display a lot of antisocial behavior. Um, so before we jump into this, the video itself, we'll, I think we'll do the video next. There's one other thing I, I want to, uh, 
talk about here because one of the biggest questions that the video doesn't address that, that Peterson and others that we were watching do attempt to address is how does this happen? And Peterson gave an, an illustration that I thought was, was very useful. And maybe some people in the audience will be able to talk to this as well. Um, he basically said, look, there, there's, there's certain theories with respect to genetic predispositions. So all of us understand that we might have genetic predispositions toward things. That doesn't mean we have to engage in those things. It doesn't mean we have to be consumed to those things. But like, for instance, forms of addiction, certain people can be more genetically predisposed toward a form of addiction than other people. The theory is that people are more genetically predisposed to certain personality disorders or personality traits that can become disorders. So that's the first part, right? The genetic predisposition. The other part has to come with things that you've experienced, especially during like early formative years of your life. And again, the environment that you grow up in or things that could happen to you or things that you could witness could also heavily contribute toward developing a personality disorder, uh, which may manifest itself early as like 15, right? Or even younger, but then becomes very, very pronounced and, and habitual and a part of your personality, a de defining trait of who you are as you get older. And so the thing that he was trying to be careful of when he talked about it though, was he's like, look, he goes, not everybody that experience, and not everybody that has a predisposition, predisposition, which also experiences trauma or abuse or something else, is going to manifest itself in a personality disorder. He goes, but you do have a subset of the population that, when the right conditions are there and you have the right catalysts, he goes, that's the theory that this is one of the things that leads to and causes these these more pronounced personality disorders. And he described it as if you if you blow up a balloon, you know, big enough past its capacity there will be a point where in the weakest part of the balloon, it will pop. Well, if the weakest part is that genetic, pre if, if all the air going into the balloon is all the things that you're experiencing, it's all the environment, it's everything else, and then it pops in a particular area at its weakest point, and that weakest point may be a genetic predisposition toward this personality disorder, that's a theory for how these things develop. And, and I thought that, again, not being an expert in this situation, I thought that made a lot of sense. And then there's the outside conditions as well, right? So there's the things that are happening to you, you know, personally, but then you add something like social media, you add all these other things, you add um, society's push toward particular ideologies or ways of thinking, all of that contributes to that. So I just wanted to lay that out there before we jump into the video. So this is, again, Christopher Rufo, he's, he's kind of putting forward this theory on what he calls the cluster B society. So let's go ahead and... and as we watch this, we're going to interrupt the video as we go through to kind of get about 12 minutes. We're going to interrupt and, and talk about various points that he brings up as he's, he's bringing them up as well. So let's go ahead and play that. Oh, one moment. While you're figuring that out. Healthy debate. Oh, okay, go ahead. And we're go ahead. good. <laughs> <laughs> you're not imagining that the world has gone mad healthy debate has been replaced by activist hysterics. Masculinity is condemned as regressive, while men in skirts and heels are celebrated in the public square. It's as if we're experiencing a society-wide mental breakdown. It's easy to laugh at these outbursts as the ravings of a small but vocal minority, but the compromised health of our body politic is not a trivial concern. A strange new pattern of psychological dysfunction has infiltrated our most prestigious institutions, our corporate bureaucracies, and the highest offices in the land. In short, we're sick, 
Our society is out of balance. We've been consumed by a cluster of disorder that appeals to our worst instincts and deranges our most important social functions. We need to recover our sanity, but to do so, we must first know exactly what we're dealing with. Every historical period develops unique psychological characteristics that shape public life. After World War I, we had the lost generation that was shell-shocked and disillusioned. In the mid-20th century, we entered the age of anxiety, characterized by a pervasive sense of existential dread in the face of the bomb. And 50 years ago, we saw the rise of the culture of narcissism, which social critic Christopher Lash described as a society obsessed with ego, desire, and self-image. Today, we... So I, I think this is, I, I think this was interesting what he did um, is, is to go back and actually look over the last hundred years and to look at various traits that kind of defined certain generations. And that was interesting because it wasn't something that I was, it, it was something I might've been vaguely aware of, but hadn't really thought about, okay, yeah, when you have an entire generation of, of young men that return from trench warfare, and this was significant in the United States, but it was predominant in France, the UK, uh, the Netherlands, Germany. I mean, the whole idea of- World War I wouldn't have been the Netherlands. <laughs> Sorry, uh, needed yeah, to- <laughs> yeah. um, the, Germany and France in particular, though, and the UK. Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about that whole region and, yeah. you know, you know, Belgium and the whole deal, that, that whole region you, you did, you had literally millions of people where, where the casualty figures were high. Uh, you had all, all you, you had, they didn't even call it PTSD at that point. They referred to it generally as like shell shock. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if you think about just the horrors of what trench war represented and the massive casualties, we, we can't even conceptualize of that today. When you're talking about like the Meuse-Argonne forest, when you're talking about the Somme, you're talking about 64,000 casualties in a matter of days. France lost 27,000 men dead, not wounded, dead in one day in August 1914 in the first month. They lost 300,000. They took 300,000 casualties in the first month. That's more casualties than we had total deaths in all of World War II, all of World War II. In one month, the first month, that, that's how many, like, like it's, it's unconceivable how Devin, we actually talked about it in our um, Population Collapse podcast, where at the very end, we showed the demographic pyramid of France in 1914 versus 1920. And you just see this gaping hole among yeah. young men what that it, had died. And uh, what, I've, what I love about Rufo in this um, video is that what he did, maybe somewhat subtly, is he connected different historical eras with a particular rise in this type of of cluster personality disorder. So the biggest problems out of the three clusters, right? He, what he basically was arguing is that each, each different era in history for the past century or so has had to deal with a particular cluster as that's the problem with mental illness. So post-World War I era, it was cluster A was the problem. Or, or yeah, well, it was, it was. I don't know that he was making a specific argument toward a particular cluster. To me, it came across as, uh, as, a lot of people were were grappling with a particular type of mental illness in this era, and yeah. then when you had the fear of the bomb in the in the post World War II era, C type. you had more cluster C type. Yeah. And now in this post Cold War 
you know, great awakening era that you, you've seen in the last 10 years or so, we're now living in what he calls the cluster B society. Now, again, that was a subtle thing that I inferred from no, it. I that, don't that think that he explicitly sense. was making that argument, yeah. but I just, I do think that that's interesting that, that, you know, the, the problems that we suffer from today, I mean, for, you know, let's be honest, this is something that I, I was having a conversation with you about this recently, Nick, that, you know, I, I, I was I was so frustrated with some of these talking points that you see from certain elements of the left, particularly the the the, the feminist narrative. And I remember we were having a conversation about history like we always do. And I brought up like how many women died on the Somme? Yeah. <laughs> like like how, how many of them died in the trenches? Right. How many of them died on the eastern front um, in World War Two? Relatively few. It's men that have to that have to stand up and then get mowed down by the millions when, when these world wars break out. And so this push for equality, this push for, you know, redressing, you know, whatever systemic oppression and whatnot, it's always, you know, on the, on corporate boards, it's not in the trenches, mm -hmm. right? There's no, there's no push for equality in that. And, and I, the reason that I bring this up is because the, the problems that so many younger people in my generation and younger are dealing with, we think that it's, it's this existential, never before seen, insurmountable, overwhelming sense of dread and fear and nihilism. And and yet we look back in the past and can we really argue that things are worse in 2023 than they were in 1914? I know. I, I think that's a good point. I think another thing to look at is, is that it's, it's perfectly reasonable to look at a time where a society can be deeply affected by a particular event. So again, World War One, where you had multiple societies deeply affected by this event, and you can certainly understand why that might manifest itself in certain, you know, mental health related issues. World War One, right? World War Two to some degree as well. But um, you know, the the bomb, right? The idea of nuclear attack. Like Tina and I are old enough to have been in school when the Soviet Union still existed and we all had missiles pointed at each other. Mm -hmm. Like I, I remember growing up playing, you know, Americans and Soviets and, and there was this idea. It wasn't as prevalent as, as people experienced in like the sixties and seventies, but it was still there. Where they were hiding under desks in yeah. case of nuclear, nuclear, nuclear yeah. war. But it, it was still there. It was still there in the eighties. And so you did have people where there was all this push about the, like the, the, you know, the, the clock, the, this group of scientists, I forget what it was, a group of scientists that had like the, the, the countdown clock to nuclear war and complete devastation and the whole deal. And of course it was left leaning because when Reagan got elected, oh, the clock is moving. It's like, oh, shut up. Oh, and <laughs> then, then they changed the clock and repurposed it for Y2K. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. They still have it around today. Now they've, they've Global repurposed it for, for climate change. Yeah. So, so there's this idea that, okay, there, there's an understanding why there might be you know, mental health issues associated with some sort of major event. But to your point, what's the major one right now that is fueling this idea of cluster B? So let's go ahead and hit play and, and watch the next part of this. Thing new, what might be called a cluster B society. Like the culture of narcissism, our own digital age has a distinct psychological profile, heavily influenced by the power of social media. The cameras are always on. An audience is always watching, and narcissism has transformed into hysteria, moral theatrics, emotional volatility, self-indulgence, and outbursts of violence. Psychologists have captured the spirit of our modern culture in four specific psychopathologies that together comprise the cluster B personality disorders. 
Narcissistic personality disorder is characterized by a sense of entitlement, obsession with one's own self-importance, and deep feelings of resentment, often expressed through moral self-righteousness. Borderline personality disorder is characterized by an unstable sense of identity, black and white thinking, feelings of emptiness, and recurring self-harm and suicide attempts. Histrionic personality disorder is characterized by excessive emotionality, sexual provocation, and attention-seeking, often to serve a pathological need for sympathy. And antisocial personality disorder is characterized by impulsivity, manipulation, disregard for others, and a penchant for violence and aggression that violates social norms. Okay, but pause. So that, that kind of gives you an, an overview of what are the, what are the cluster B um, personality disorder types. And, and again, as, as you're looking through that, it, it's hard not to draw certain conclusions about, you know, what this represents. It reminds me of a lot of things that we've yeah. seen lately. I, I I'm mean, sure there's some people that are like seeing family members faces as they hear these things, you know, in their yeah. head or, or people they know or have been around or even people in, in the media. So, so let's, let's go through each one of these a little bit to just kind of just, you know, draw a little bit of distinction between what constitutes a disorder versus what might be a trait. So when we're talking about like antisocial personality disorder, right? A deeply ingrained and rigid dysfunctional thought process that focuses on social irresponsibility with exploitive delinquent and criminal behavior with no remorse. All right, so this is why, and, and what was fascinating, I, I forget who the doctor's name was. She was on uh, Med Circle. Um, I'll, I'll try to look that up later if I can find it. But um, she was talking, one of the things that was fascinating, and I, I'm just not used to hearing people say within the medical field, is she said, you know, the treatment for a lot of this is not an automatic thing. Like this idea that, oh yeah, you just treat it this way and then you're good. She was saying that when it comes to antisocial, when it comes to, to borderline personality disorders, when it comes to really all of cluster B, you end up with a lot of people that tend to think that if they do wind up in counseling, it's court ordered. <laughs> like a lot of the antisocial personality disorders, she goes, if, if you end up in counseling, a lot of that, that's court ordered. And she goes, and if you get in with kind of like the CEO type of narcissistic or antisocial, you're going to run into somebody that honestly believes that they're, they're there to game the system. They're there to prove that they're smarter than the therapist that's supposed to be assisting them. And so she said, one of the major problems that you run into is with people that they don't think they need any help. They find it somewhat insulting that they have to be there in the first place. She goes, I've sat across from people with antisocial or, or narcissistic personality disorder where they don't open it up at all. They'll just sit there and look at you and be like, yeah, I know why I'm here. The court said I have to be here. I have to be here for this many hours and you have to write down that I was here for this many hours. And that's it. Right. There, there's no no desire whatsoever. And this is something that Jordan Peterson actually brings up in his in his Bible series when he talks about casting pearls before swine, right? The idea of there's a point where if someone doesn't actually want the help, the best thing you might be able to do for someone is stop offering the help. And that just sounds, you know, cruel. Um, and in some of these situations, it could potentially be dangerous, especially when you're talking about somebody that has no problem with engaging in exploitive delinquent or criminal behavior with absolutely no remorse. Um, in fact, one of the things they describe the antisocial behavior is they actually think that taking advantage of you is something you deserve because if you were smarter, you wouldn't fall for it. And, and it is one thing to not have remorse about doing something, about being deliberately manipulative or um, 
exploitive of another person. It's another thing to turn it into a morally just thing to do. And so it's important to distinguish between somebody that, you know, might be a little bit, you know, in, in more into themselves than they should be or, or whatnot, or might be, or might easily take advantage of other people versus someone that this pretty much defines their personality and their social interactions with others. It's interesting. Brian Betts said, uh, yeah, let's not forget that. Oh, I'm trying to go back up to it. <clears throat> let's not forget that CEOs hold a higher narcissist rate by far than the general population. Those types of mental disorders gravitate toward positions of power. I would argue that anybody with any kind of mental disorder will gravitate to whatever benefits them the most. Yeah. And so it's, it's the same, I mean, positions of power with narcissists, you know, including the government and, uh, you know, people like that. Oh, it's I, easy to point the finger at CEOs. How about politicians? I was about to say, <laughs> yeah. does that apply to political power too? But you know, I would even go, I would even go, into a, a completely different area and go, it's the same reason why pedophiles like going to the park or mm -hmm. why a pedophile would like to get themselves into a position of power within the school system or within churches. And I mean, no, anytime somebody has something going on with themselves like that, um, and the, they're going to try to position themselves to where they gain the most benefit. And so even within, um, you know, personality disorders, I think it's one of the reasons why we have the rise in this victim status is because you gain the most benefit. Maybe that's why they're on the left. You gain the most benefit from being in that position and you get the most clout from being in that position. Well, that's I mean, absolutely why they're on the left. I've brought up repeatedly, especially in, I think the clown world episode and, and I think maybe the episode where we talked about the neo reactionaries that, that the, the more, the worse off an individual or group acts, the more the left likes them. And the reason why is because in a normal functioning, healthy society, people with that suffer from a, all these cluster B disorders would not usually be in positions of power. If, if they're, if, if they're incredibly self-destructive society typically does not like to elevate people who suffer from mental illnesses to positions of power. Now, sometimes people get through Right. Sometimes people can mask these things, but in a healthy society, somebody who's suffering from extreme narcissism, for example, is not usually going to be elevated into a position of, of high degree of political power. And the, the reason that I, I think that part of the reason that you're seeing so many of these mental health problems appear on the left more than than anywhere else is because the way that the left inherently functions is the worse off a person acts or, or is or a group acts or is the more the left likes them because the, the narrative is join me, vote for me. And I will give you status and power that you otherwise would not have. You owe your position in society in that hierarchy of political power or influence to the fact that you're voting for the Democrats or you're voting for the Labor Party or whatever the left wing party is in well, any and, of these developed this, countries. But they exist on well, both sides, I would say. No, they absolutely. I mean, because speaking of narcissistic behavior, I mean, is the same reason why what's her name? The congresswoman would crack jokes about having sex with her fiance right before a prayer meeting at the prayer meeting. <laughs> That's a narcissist who doesn't realize that, oh, maybe you shouldn't do that. And, and, and these aren't the people to talk to about well, it. And, and again, or, that's, or the that's same a, reason why like Joe Morrissey could, you know, you know, sexually abuse, commit statutory rape in his office and serve jail time and still get reelected and then get re get elected to another position. 
I think, and again, let's be careful between disorder versus trait, right? You can have a personality trait that leans toward narcissism. I was just saying narcissism. Yeah, you can lead toward narcissism without being narcissistic personality disorder. But here, here's the other part to to take into effect. I also want to make a distinction between liberal and leftist. Um, th- this is this is really important because I don't disagree with Christian that that the modern left's political apparatus seems to be built around the sort of structure that Christian described. And, and, and I have a hard time with anybody telling me that's not true because generally the way incentives work is you get more of what you reward and you get less of what you ostracize or, or punish. And I, nobody's going to convince me that the modern left isn't rewarding more of this. And, and, and they might not come out and say, oh, we're rewarding antisocial or borderline personality. That's not the claim here. It's more of the idea that the more intersectional points you have, the higher you go up within within that hierarchy, right? There's always a hierarchy. Oh the yeah, question, the they question put it is, right there with their with their pronouns in their bio. Yeah, at this point. So so the the idea is is that what what sort of behaviors or what sort of character traits are are being incentivized within a particular power structure, right? And I think that's fair. Now the the difference I want to make between liberal and what you might call conservative, and this is a point that Jordan Peterson breaks out, is that when you look at a lot of entrepreneurs, you actually find a lot of people, uh, entrepreneurs and artists, you find a lot of people that are more liberal, and they're more liberal in the sense of openness, which is to say they're they're open to they're they're more open to new ideas, they're less skeptical of new ideas and ideas, and and you tend to find a lot of creativity within a, a liberal or open um, you know personality trait. And, and that can be a really, really good thing, right? There's nothing inherently negative about that. The thing that Peterson was also talking about was conservatives. You find a lot of conservatives that make very, very good managers. And he was saying that in a healthy society, you still have people that are more open or liberal in their thinking, and you have people that are more conservative in their thinking. The difference is, is they actually find a healthy equilibrium where the open the openness trait allows for innovation and new development and new ideas. And the conservative trait helps weed out which one of those ideas are good and bad. And then also helps with the healthy implementation of those ideas. So when we say left, I don't want people to think that we think that, Oh, if you, if you tend to be more liberal or more of an openness personality trait, you're the enemy here. That's, that's not the idea. What we're seeing that is so unique, and this is what Christian pointed out within the 2012 to 2014 timeframe where we started to see this massive jump, was not the idea of just more openness or, or liberal ideology. That's where we saw this more hardcore leftism. I would argue that that's where you saw critical thought, critical um, theory becoming far more predominant in mainstream left-wing ideologies within like the Democratic Party of the United States. Now, they've been in academia forever. They've been in academia for decades. But now they're in the HR departments. Now they're in your public school system. And that's the part where critical theory is specifically rooted in this idea of oppressor or oppressed. Right? You're going to be in one of those two categories. And you better and if you're an oppressor, you are the bad guy. And Increasingly, being an oppressor has meant if you are a certain skin color, if you are a certain sex, if you are, if you are heterosexual, right? So if you're a white male heterosexual, you are the bad guy. And, and people can say all day long, well, I'm, I'm white and heterosexual and, and a Democrat and I don't agree with that at all. Fine. But I, I am telling you what the generalized narrative out there is, is that if you are those things and you don't immediately identify as an ally of all of these oppressed groups, you're, you're the enemy. 
And and so I, I think that's somewhat problematic. I, I think the original intention, though, uh, overall, was to have be more empathetic toward people who struggled with certain types of of disorders. You yeah. know, um, there's certain there's people that like things exactly a perfect exactly a certain way, and they're not trying to be a jerk. They're just saying, hey, you messed up my order of things here. Yeah. And and if you know that they have, let's say, OCD or something like that, then you, you're a little more empathetic to the fact that they need things to be just so in order to keep their thoughts in order. And, and I think we went from trying to be empathetic to people to then glorifying it or even having people that that almost kind of co-opt it then because there's there's genuine disorders and then there's people that are like, Hey, there's, this is kind of a, a, a hustle here. It's a trend. I can jump in here and I can gain the same empathy that this person got. And I, but I'm just really an a-hole yeah. and, um, <laughs> and, and these people will feel bad for me. And, and so I don't know. I mean, is this like the narcissist who masks other symptoms in order to gain the system a little bit? I don't know. Well, let's, let's look at this thing. So that antisocial personality disorder, again, that's someone that, again, if you go into your prisons, you're going to find a lot of people with antisocial traits and some with antisocial personality disorders. Like the, the, the meanest of the mean probably have the disorder, whereas a lot of other people might have, might have aspects of the trait. The second one we're going to talk about is the borderline personality disorder, right? This is emotion, uh, um, dysregulation, impulsivity, risk-taking behavior, irritability, feelings of emptiness, self-injury, and fear of abandonment, as well as unstable interpersonal relationships. How many healthy, to, to go back to what I said earlier, how many healthy societies would elevate somebody like that to a position of political power? Oh, none. None. And and that, that gets back to part of the reason, not entirely, part of the reason that you're seeing these things pop up on the left more than anywhere else is because quite frankly, the left rewards these things. In fact, I would actually argue that leftism by nature in, in, in this post cold war, post world war II society actually encourages these things because we've, we've talked about before and, and, and I'm not going to get super into detail on this because we've talked about so many times, like the emergence of Gramsci, you know, Gramsci's thought about, you know, how to pull off a Marxist revolution in the West yeah. when technology is getting better and people aren't likely to go seize the means of production when their paychecks are going up. Well, you, you do it on the cultural side and on the social side. Well, the most obvious way to do that is again, to encourage these elements of society that would never have political power in their own right. Somebody who suffers from, from borderline personality disorder or not even suffers from it. Somebody, somebody who, who revels in it would typically not be elevated to a position of, of political power over the rest of society. Society usually does not like to be run by a bunch of narcissists who, who self-destruct and in doing so, drag everybody else down around them. And yet, what do you see? You actually see this, particularly this type of trait, not not just, I, I, I would say, openly celebrated by the left. Not even just tolerated, actually encouraged and openly celebrated by certain elements of the left. Well, the well, can, can we also point out the fact that um, with certain disorders, there's money to be made. Mm -hmm. Uh, so anytime there's money to be made, like there's people that have certain traits, like let's say cutting and self-harm. Well, 
if somebody can capitalize on that and see that there's money to be made, maybe they can convince them that they are in the wrong body. And maybe they won't feel like cutting so much if we just cut off their member and their, you know, healthy breast or whatever it is. I saw a picture just the other day of a girl whose mom was standing next to her um, and she had had a, a had you know, the top surgery, surgery. Yeah, top she had this massive gaping scar and she was standing there smiling with her mom that like she finally had her breasts removed. But along with that scar, you could see all up and down her arm, all these cuts, old, old cuts, all down her abdomen cuts, all down the other side of her abdomen and on her legs, cuts, cuts, cuts everywhere. And I'm just going, did these doctors just figured out that, oh, I can make a lifelong I can have a lifelong patient and they won't mind me cutting everything off of them. I mean, there is a point where this looks predatory to me. It it looks like well, let, they're making a lot of money off of some of these disorders. We're, we're going to, we're going to get into more of that later. What I, what I really want to like, like this section, let's go through each one of these. So everyone has a good understanding of what we're talking about. So when we talk about borderline personality disorder, one of the ways that, that Peterson articulated this was talking about the idea that, there, there are some clinicians that believe that borderline personality disorder is actually kind of a female manifestation of antisocial personality disorder. Not necessarily everyone believes that, but the, the, I think it's well over 70% of the people that are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder are women. Um, and, and if you, if you think about some of these things where it's the impulsivity, risk-taking behavior, um, like just valuing someone in their life, like imagine someone that is just worshipful of somebody and then you know, something else happens and now they're just dead to them. Uh, so that this major irregularity with respect to the way that they interact with people that are, are important in their lives. And again, that idea of self injury, fear of abandonment is, is so, um, is so incredible as to cause them to act in ways and behave in ways that almost make abandonment a, a certainty. Um, that's, that's the borderline personality disorder. And again, some people look at that and say, Oh, it's like bipolar. Like, no, there's, again, there's clinical differences within these definitions between bipolar and borderline disorder. Um, the next one, and this one's really interesting, and I think this is one of the ones that social media probably exacerbates the most, and that's the histrionic uh, personality disorder. This is self-centeredness, attention-seeking behavior, overdramatic emotions, seductive and sexually provocative behaviors. And again, the way I was listening to to one of the doctors, I'm just going to look up her name while we're, well, next time you want, you guys are, are talking about this, but it, it was the idea of someone that um, oftentimes relies on a heavy degree of sexual um, um, provocative behavior in order to gain attention. Uh, they're also someone that will um, be overly dramatic or maybe uh, uh, talk about their own experiences or whatnot. So the idea is how do I get your attention? If I can get it visually and I can get it by being seductive. I'll do that. If I then have to get it through, you know, exaggerating either my plight or my accomplishments or, or whatever else, all of that also goes into that histrionic personality disorder. And, and they're actually going to show an example of this that we'll see as well. And the final one is that narcissistic personality disorder. And this is a strong need for admiration, act as superior and behave with grandiosity. They tend to exaggerate their achievements in front of others and have fantasies of unlimited success, power, and beauty. 
And you, you can easily see how you could be predominant in one of these disorders. And this is, this is another thing that clinicians talk about with cluster B is that you, you may predominantly fit into one of these disorders, but then also display traits. So you can see an area where a narcissistic personality disorder would also demonstrate traits within antisocial personality disorder, right? So it's the idea of the person that needs this, the strong CEO that needs to be on top of the world, that then uses exploitive and irresponsible behaviors in order order to get there. Um, you can see, you know, the, the, the same thing within histrionic personality disorder and narcissist, someone being, you know, very narcissistic and engaging in this sort of sexually provocative behavior, overly dramatic emotions and things of that in order to get that attention. So that that's one of the areas where they were talking about, you will see a lot of crossover and in between um, the, these various disorders as well. So I just wanted to go a little bit more in depth on, on each one of these. So we got a good baseline for what we talk about next. So go ahead and hit play again. This cluster of social pathologies is no longer an individual matter. It has begun to shape the patterns and structures of our entire culture, which is quickly becoming a cluster B society that replaces disagreement with accusation, uses false compassion to manipulate citizens into compliance, honors victimhood instead of accomplishment, and enforces the whole scheme with the threat of violence. Pathocracy. For most of our history, significant personality disorders were treated as problems and largely relegated to the fringes of society. But in our emerging Cluster B society, the narcissist, the borderline, the hysteric, and the antisocial psychological types have been elevated into positions of power and celebrated by our institutions. The new status quo is an emerging leadership class that rules through emotional blackmail. Powerful institutions use the cover of various victim groups to impose their agenda on the rest of us. If we dissent, we're branded as hateful bigots. We're accused of lacking empathy. We're ritualistically banished. While these strategies are contemptible, they're also remarkably effective in controlling what we think, what we say, and how we act. And they've slowly transformed our institutions into what psychologist Andre Lobachevsky calls pathocracy, or rule by psychological dysfunction. This has become our new social order. If you look around, you'll start seeing it everywhere. The cluster B traits have been formalized and entrenched in our human resource departments, government policies, cultural institutions, and civil rights law. This is a recruiting video from the CIA that overtly valorizes the cluster B traits of narcissistic identity obsession, self-righteousness, and need for affirmation. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Pause. I remember when we saw stunning this, and brave cisgender millennial. Well, and, and the the interesting part is this is he does a clip. It's it's like this was a long recruiting video for the CIA. It wasn't like a thirty second clip on on the TV that just comes up in between you know your episodes. This was actually I think like a two or three minute clip, and so much of it was just jam packed with what we would call social justice warrior language. Well, even the shirt she's wearing is complete like activism. Yep. Yeah. And and just in the chat, guys, do you think people who are heavily engaged in activism on any side of the aisle on any issue heavily engaged in activism activism should be in a high position within the CIA do, do you think that's well, a good idea she's not do you think they're going to be level-headed and understanding and and blind to uh to all of those things when they're dealing with 
people well, they're investigating. Here's the important thing to keep in mind too. She doesn't occupy a high position in the CIA. She basically works in an HR style department. And and this has become this Okay, has become, but even still well, wait, if she's but, in the HR department or whatever and she's wearing this, you know, female fist, you know, shirt do you think she's going to be the best person to look through HR complaints about about certain things and not just automatically side with the woman? I, I just, I have a problem with this. They should never have put this up. This no, is ridiculous. No, I, I, to be honest, can I just say, you guys, as a woman, I feel embarrassed of this. Embarrassed. I think it's important to keep in mind that the CIA likely hired some type of advertising firm to say, hey, how can we get more recruits? And the idiots came up with this. And this is the type of recruits they're going for. Is well, that really the, what the, you want? The important thing to remember, too. That yes, actually, if if you're if you have a certain political agenda, well, this is actually what you want. Here's here's the trouble with all this. And this goes to Tina's point, right? This isn't <laughs> you're not going to see a lot of people, you know, doing this who are field operator, uh, operatives with the CIA. This isn't ground branch, right? These aren't people actually conducting high threat operations. No, where are they working? The HR department. Well, who has? Who do you think has more control over the culture of an institution? The people doing the actual work within the institution or the people that are controlling the admin rules for how people are supposed to behave within the work environment? The people that are going to be able to looking at the various complaints. The people that when somebody comes in with a complaint, instead of, looking through it objectively are going to automatically go into activist mode. Yeah. And that's going to end up uh, that here's what that ends up doing. It ends up affecting the way the entire organization operates. It also ends up affecting who you can actually recruit because the more and more people that you need to fill certain positions no longer want to work in that company because they see themselves as a target. If not for legal action, at the very least, they don't feel welcome within that environment. And then who the hell are you supposed to get to kick in doors and get bad guys? Right. Because it isn't going to be the gender studies major. Right. That is that's just not a thing. So, yeah, this is anyway, let, let's go ahead and hit play and watch the uh, what's the next part here. In a cluster B society, psychological disorders become markers of distinction rather than problems to be solved. Pause. Politics that. OK, that is probably one of I think one of the most profound things that was said in this in a cluster B society, the psychological problems become a note of distinction rather than a problem to be solved. I think that is, I think that does a very good job of explaining the, the extreme like left woke approach. And again, when we say woke, just so nobody accuses us of not being able to define this, we don't describe woke as just hypersensitive to bigotry or discrimination. Woke, I think has become beyond just um, identifying a particular problem, but then assigning a cause of that problem, which is, okay, there's disparities within society. Disparity is a result of oppressor versus oppressed dynamics within our power structures, right? It's, it's, that's the source of the problem. Okay. So what's the solution to the problem? More government power to help the oppressed at the expense of the oppressors. Okay. Well, that may sound fine until you start to figure out who falls into the oppressed category and who falls into the oppressor category. And if you have a system which says if you are, if you want to fall into the uh, oppressed category, right? Because they don't think they're, they're not actually oppressed in any sort of like traditional sense or understanding of that word. It's not like they're out there being forced to be chattel slaves. Like that's not the case. They're being elevated into positions of prominence and distinction within society in general. Right. But if you have one of these disorders, 
If you say now that you're a, a man when you're actually a biological woman, if you say a biological woman when you're actually a man, you automatically transfer from one category to another category and your intersectional score goes up. So again, I don't know that what he's saying, I think is absolutely true. Like we're witnessing this in real time within that branch of leftist ideology. Again, I'm not talking about general liberalism. I'm talking about this branch of leftist ideology, which I would argue is now running things within the democratic party. Right. So it is, it is for, for all like the, for all of like the left of center people identify as liberals who don't like being associated with this. I get it. I, I genuinely get it. But the major political party in this country, which has carried the banner for liberalism, is now largely defined by this. And if that's not true, please show me. Don't don't show me the random liberal that you can find on the street that will say, yeah, this is ridiculous. Show me the elected Democrat. Show me an elected Democrat in, in a state legislature, in a in the federal legislature. Show me one that when you ask you know, hey, can can men have babies? Show me the one that'll be like, no, that's absurd. Show me one that will give the Bill Maher response. There's not, there's none. I don't know of a single one. I don't know of a single, not, not that would do it publicly. They might do it privately. I don't know a single one at this point that would do it publicly. The only reason Bill Maher's giving the responses that he's giving now is because his his he's upset about the fact that leftism has not stopped moving to the left. He was okay with it up until it got to the point that it started crossing his sacred cows and yeah. then he got upset. And this is the same, I, Nick, you and I have talked about this over and over again. It seems like every single prominent voice on the right was a former leftist. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm not, like, I'm, like, look, I'm not, I'm not, how this, I'm not, how this I'm, plays out. Notice how he said this. I did not say Bill Maher was on the right. He's not. No, Bill Maher is on the left solidly. The point yeah. is, is that I get a lot of people that will get mad at me when I say this is what the left believes because they'll say, well, I don't believe that. And I'm on the left. Well, Bill Maher. Okay. I'm not talking about everyone in general, but here's what I do have a question for you. Every single person I know who represents you in the Virginia legislature believes this stuff or at least votes like they believe this stuff. So again, this would be the equivalent, this would be the equivalent of every single Republican having a particular narrative on something and me saying, well, I don't share that narrative, so Republicans don't share that narrative. Right. Like that's that's not fair. All right, so let, let's go ahead and. X2 has been infected. We need trans people, we love trans people. Trans people belong here. This is a state senator engaged in deranged moral theatrics with all of the attention seeking, black and white thinking, and excessive emotionality associated with cluster B. So um, I wanna recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing them. And finally, we see Kiara Bridges, a law professor at UC Berkeley who demonstrates the kind of antagonism, emotional manipulation, an accusatory tone that has become a staple of political discourse. Pause. That is so true. There's this little laugh they do when <laughs> yeah. they'll they'll do this thing where they're like, well, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but <laughs> and, and they just they do this little <laughs> like you're a you're a moron. I'm really smart. Why don't you educate yourself? And every single one of them do this. It's the, a social cue to signal to your ideological allies that you hold the quote unquote correct opinions. 
That's what yeah, it is. Yeah, probably so. Well, it, it's also a way of demeaning the person that you're speaking with. Like this, this is, there, there was a really interesting video um, of a, a criminal that had actually like had gotten away with murder for, I think like over a decade. And he's finally being questioned by the police. And, and he did this thing where like he's, as the police are talking to him, he's like accusing them of stuff. He's making counter accusations. He's like looking down at his nails, looking out the window when they're talking to him. And, and Peterson is explaining how these are kind of like, narcissistic traits where someone is signaling to you that they're better than you or that whatever they have else going on within their mind at that point is far more important than anything that you happen to be saying. I think what was interesting about this whole transaction, this is something that I've, I've brought up before that I think is, is, is particularly concerning. Whenever somebody makes this statement that your line of questioning, because if you go back and look at what he was asking, he was asking about, can, you know, can men have babies? You know, right. You know, he was, he was asking basic questions that nobody would have considered, you know, strange or unusual, uh, except that the question had to be asked in and of itself five years ago. It was Josh Hawley asking the question. Yeah. Senator Josh Hawley. What did I say? I just oh, want to make sure our audio yeah, listeners knew Senator that. Senator Josh Hawley were, were at, was asking these questions, pretty standard questions. And she said, your line of questioning is transphobic. So first of all, what is phobia? This is another thing that really irritates me about our, our, our modern political discourse. Phobia is generally associated with an irrational fear or hatred towards something. Bigotry is especially an irrational hatred towards something. But, but the phobia is a fear. And so why would you call someone, like I'm not, I'm not scared of people who identify as transgender. I'm not scared of people that suffer from gender um, um, dysphoria. This doesn't frighten me. So why are you calling me transphobic? Well, because it's a, it's, it's a way to demean you. It's a way to show, because if, if you're displaying a phobia, then typically when someone has a phobia, what do we do? We offer treatment for them to get over their irrational fear of something. So the moment I accuse you of engaging in a phobic behavior, I, I'm essentially, I'm decreasing you. I'm elevating myself because I've just diagnosed you as something that needs treatment. Right. And, and I have no, no need whatsoever for me to actually validate that accusation that I've just made against you. Well, I you just find it every single time you question anything. Yeah. If you question, if you, if you, if you latch on to a certain logical inconsistency within their argument and you try to drill down on it at all by asking more questions, um, the minute they run into a conflict in their mind, the minute they know they cannot logically answer this question, or if they logically answer the question, they will come under fire and, and it'll put them on one side or the other of, of this equation. That's when they immediately resort to name calling and, and saying you're a bigot or that you're a phobic or whatever you might be. Um, it, it's, it's a clear indication that they have run into the logical fallacy themselves and cannot answer it. And now they need to denigrate you in order to, to change the subject. It, it has become a form of ad hominem attack. And, and again, that's not to say that there isn't such a thing as phobic discussions or, or behaviors or ideas. Clearly there are. It's that whenever you disagree with me, I'm going to, I'm going to categorize you as being, you know, LGBT phobic or transphobic or whatever phobic. And then the second part that she said, and I, I really want people to understand this. The second part that she went into was this whole idea of it is opening up trans people to violence. Mm -hmm. And Josh Howley starts saying, he goes, I'm, he goes, wait a second. I'm opening up people to violence by just asking these questions That's because words are violence now. Well, and, and this is an important distinction, right? We used to always have a, a good understanding of violence versus nonviolence. Now, can you engage in, in verbal activity, which, which is equates to violence? Sure. If I tell you I'm going to kill you, 
Right, that that's a direct threat. I just want to let our audio listeners know that Nick is pointing at me and looking at me when he says that. Remember <laughs> when we did our Rome episode and you were like, I wouldn't be surprised if you'd be assassinated. I think I know who my Brutus is. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, is that if I if I come out and I and I directly threaten someone, we understand that that's a different type of speech, right? That's not a protected speech. But when you ask questions about something, about the existence of something, or about the ramifications of something, in the way that Josh Hawley was. Nobody would have ever considered that violence. And the question is, is why are they doing it now? I believe some people do it because they want to shut down debate, right? I call you transphobic. And then I say that what you're doing is opening up trans people to violence, right? Yeah. The, the desire is to shut you down for yep. some people. For other people, I think that their desires, they want to engage in acts of violence against you and they need moral justification for it. And the moral justification they've arrived at is by asking that question or making that statement, you've engaged in a form of aggressive violence. And now any violence I perpetrate against you is by nature defensive violence and therefore justified and noble. So then when they say this, what they're doing is dog whistling to anyone else in the community who is willing to actually commit the violence then. that The irony is that, I mean, we've talked about this before that like, so many of these, so many leftists actually do that which they accuse others of being guilty of. So, for example, dog whistling. Like, yeah. in many respects, that is a, that is a dog whistle. It's not a racist dog whistle, but it's yeah. a dog whistle. It, it's not actually a better way to describe it is what I said earlier that it is it's a form of virtue signaling that that you are telling your ideological allies that you hold the quote unquote correct opinions. Yeah, and it, like it's a self-reinforcing what it is. It's like a meme plex. It's a self-reinforcing system of, of, of beliefs that, that gear people towards emphasizing, promoting and encouraging the spread of quite frankly, these type of personality disorders and mental illnesses. Because like I said earlier, if you are, if, if you fall into cluster B, arguably if you fall into any of the clusters, but particularly cluster B, if you fall into cluster B, you are way more likely to find allies on the left than you are on the right because the right usually prides things like order and merit and marketplace of ideas and let the best ideas, the best people rise to the top. We want, we want the most competent people running everything in society, regardless of their status, their birth, their gender, their skin color, their background. I mean, that was the, what the American revolution was built upon. And unfortunately it took us a long time to get to that yeah. point. But this idea that no, we're not going to be ruled by people just because they were born to the right family or they had the right amount of money. We, since the founding of classical liberalism has always been predicated on meritocracy. Mm -hmm. That is not what leftism is predicated upon. No. Leftism doesn't care about meritocracy. Leftism cares about power and accumulating power. And how do you accumulate power with a loyal base of followers that will basically charge the gates of hell with you? And the reason why they're willing to do that is because where else are they going to go? The right is never going to accept people who brag about their social illnesses in their Twitter bio, sorry, X bios. Like <laughs> they never will. We, we, on, the, on the right as classical liberals or even just as, as conservatives or libertarians for that matter, we will never pride ourselves on, oh, well, I, I'm a right, I'm a good person because I hired somebody that suffers from, you know, cluster A, cluster B, cluster B. Yeah. Like we don't do that. Yeah. Instead, we want to say, I want the most competent person running the company or running the country or, or serving in these positions of power. Well, we, we do, we do like one of the biggest things that we elevate, I would say on the right is when somebody overcomes a challenge. 
when, when someone, when somebody identifies with or dwells within the, the problem, we, we have an aversion to that. When somebody rises up and overcomes the challenge that we have an incredible amount of, of not only um, sympathy for that, we tend to elevate that. We, we get a great deal of, of, we don't like indulging. No, we don't no. like indulging something that's negative, but well, you know, okay. I, I wouldn't put it that broadly because I know a lot of conservatives that indulge a lot of things that I, I don't sure, think sure, necessarily sure. better. Well, here's the other thing that I think is again, important about this. I believe she's a law professor. Now, now keep that in mind as we watch this next part. Can I say one yeah. thing? He mentioned that um, he thought that like she was sort of virtual signaling to say that like she's on the right side of this issue kind of thing to her people. But I think that what she did was actually more pernicious than that. Um, I think, yes, she might've been doing that, but I also think what she did from her position, um, you know, law professor at UC Berkeley, go figure. Um <laughs> She basically gave permission like she this is this is somebody that studies the law. And so I would imagine she chooses her words very carefully. So to say you have engaged in language that you are opens, opening up, you are opening people. them up to violence and basically putting the onus on his shoulders that if violence happens, it will be your fault. Mm-hmm. And she is at that point giving permission to anybody who agrees with her and anybody on her side of the ideological, uh, on her ideological side of this issue. Um, it's giving permission for them to basically, you know, take a crowbar in the, uh, in the, in the parking lot and deal with this because that those are the people that are on that side. They know that they know within their ranks, they have the people that are given to violence. Well, we see that we see this with Antifa. We see this with Antifa where they, they've kind of, Many, many people within Antifa seem to really just revel in the idea of of engaging in aggressive violence because, again, they've morally justified in their own minds by saying, well, no, these people are evil. They're fascists. You can't engage in aggressive violence against a fascist because they all deserve it. They all have it coming to them. So as long as you've been classified within that category, like if if you've been put into this group, their group is now morally justified in hurting you. Yeah. Let's go ahead and uh, hit play. The goal is not to arrive at answers, but to browbeat opponents and make them feel bad for denying left-wing orthodoxy. For audio listeners, it says laboratories of The modern university is the primary laboratory for the cluster B pathologies. On campus, the pathocracy rules. The social critic Heather McDonald reveals the basic contours of this regime in an essay entitled the great feminization of the university. McDonald argues that the dramatic rise in the number of female college administrators who now dominate the campus culture has led to a growing obsession with safety, harm, and victimization. Rather than prioritize academic achievement and substantive debate, administrators have elevated nebulous therapeutic concepts such as trauma, white fragility, and systemic injustice. As McDonald notes, when students claim to be felled by ideas that they disagree with, The feminized bureaucracy does not tell them to grow up and get a grip. It validates their self-pity. As a result, American college students have found themselves in the midst of an unprecedented mental health crisis. According to the University of Michigan's Healthy Minds study, more than 60% of college students meet the criteria for at least one mental health problem. A nearly 50% increase since 2013. Pause real quick. That's insane. It's insane because, again, the, the general thought and, and I, I don't say I, I don't think it has to be this way, but I would say that most people assume 
that if you're in a position of power or authority in this country, economically, politically, you went to college. And now what we're seeing is that 60% of college students meet the criteria for at least one mental health problem. And again, that is a 50% total increase in one decade, in one decade. That is phenomenal. And, and again, anybody that's going to tell me like, oh no, these problems were, these problems were always there. We're just now properly understanding them. I'm sorry. I, I, I have a hard time buying that. I have a hard time buying. Well, it's that- a really convenient answer, isn't it? That is a really convenient way to sweep under the rug, like a massive increase. So to, to be like, oh, well, we're just diagnosing this now uh, because people are now willing to look into it and yeah. the stigma is now gone. And so we're actually able to look into it. No, 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 no. You don't get to just do that. I mean, doesn't, does, I mean, there has to be some kind of accountability for this, something. Well, and I, and I we'll, we'll, we'll probably get into that a little. That whole idea of stigma is something I think we need to, to talk about. The stigma and the idea of, of shame is something that I, I believe have been turned into essentially, essentially dirty words, right? Where it, it, it's as if there's no social benefit or even individual benefit to the concepts of stigmatizing something or shame. And I think yeah. that's problematic, but let's, let's. Yeah. Oh, here's a little exercise in the chat. Name one thing that needs to be stigmatized that you think should be stigmatized. Rape, murder, child molestation. Exactly. <laughs> but, but name them because that this idea that we need to take away all the various stigmas around everything. No, no, no. There are, there, there are certain things that exist for a reason. Toughening people up is something that, that, we used to do, we used to prepare our kids for the big, bad world by making sure that they were resilient and that they were tough enough to handle it when they were exposed to all of these things rather than sit there. And it's almost like the, everyone gets a trophy yeah. uh, thing and we're going to just like validate everything and, and just worry so much about your self-esteem and, and not worry about what actually gives you a good self-esteem. By the way, if you want a really good video after this, watch Jordan Peterson's one where he basically dismantles the whole concept of self-esteem. And he, and he actually talks about how the California public school system went on this massive self-esteem push. And he goes, it was really good at creating narcissists yeah. or, or people with narcissistic tendencies because the, the whole concept of, okay, what is self-esteem and why should you have it? You remember when we got told like, Oh, the reason why bullies are bullies is because they have low self-esteem. Well, somebody actually went through and academically studied that turns out not the case. Most bullies did not have low self-esteem. They had an elevated sense of self-esteem, which is why they didn't mind punishing other people around them for being in their way. And, and again, it's fascinating to me how we, the, the social trends take on, they become popular. And then all of a sudden it's like, nope, that's the, the experts say. Yeah. And, the and science it, is settled. <laughs> and it sounds good. It's, it's, it's superficially plausible, right? It's superficially plausible to think, well, if, if students that perform well have, have good self-esteem, well, then if we help these other students have low self-esteem, have high self-esteem, they'll perform well. Instead of saying, well, no, maybe the self-esteem arrives from people actually accomplishing something. It, 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 it arises from the results of working for something and earning it. In, yeah. in fact, they've, they've looked at this before on, on determining whether or not, you know, what makes people generally happy with respect to their profession or their income or things like that. And they find that people that win the lottery are nowhere near as happy as people that, you know, um, feel like they have a sense that they earned what they have. Yeah. Right. There, there's an, there's an incredible amount of value in believing that you have earned what you, what you have. Earlier, Brian mentioned that he thought, 
now, and this was just kind of throwing an opinion out there that, that maybe um, kids are realizing that they were promised a lot more than they ended up getting and, and they're finding it a lot harder to navigate everything because of that, because of the over promise and under delivering. And I'm just paraphrasing that. Um, but I would argue why then is there a left and right disparity? Is it that leftist? I've been trying. No, let me finish, please. Please <laughs> let me finish. All right. Is it that leftist parents promise their kids that they can do anything and be anything and go anywhere and the sky's the limit and there are no limitations for you? You can do it all. And that maybe people on the right are like, hey, let's find out what you're really capable of and 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 maybe help you gear toward what what your real capabilities are. I mean, could. Could that explain some of that disparity? Just a question. The reason why is because leftism is effectively a a mechanism to obtain political power. And like any sort of virus, it has evolved in order to achieve that end state. So it's discarded things that will prevent its ability to propagate and spread power. And it's obtained new skills in order to th think, think of COVID, for example. Um, COVID like all viruses did not in intend at the start to kill its host. It can't spread if its host is dead. Yeah. And so what do you see over time? You saw that COVID became less lethal with time because the virus wanted to be able to spread to a new host, not kill its host and prevent it from being able to spread. Well, likewise leftism as an ideology concerned primarily with the obtaining of political power above all other ends is concerned with how do you achieve political power? So the old mechanism of using class warfare and using the old Marxist playbook in order to achieve power, that has failed in the West. That has totally failed. And so what do you do? You discard, you discard it. The left used to be championing themselves as we're the party of the working class. They're not anymore. Go look at go look at the Rust Belt in the US right now or go yeah. look at the Rust Belt in the UK. And can you really say the Democrats are the Labour Party or the party of the working class? No, they're the party of the professional laptop class. I say this as somebody who's part of the professional laptop <laughs> class. I'm an outlier. I'm, I'm a rebel. But... The reason I bring this up is because when you when you start to realize how left leftism again I'm I'm separating that from somebody who's who's a liberal right yeah. leftism as a mechanism to obtain political power once it reached a point where it could not use class as a status in order to obtain power by dividing people based on class appealing to the vast majority of people that that fall into what we call the working class in order to obtain political power what do they do they went searching for an alternative the alternative that they found, this is where Gramsci falls apart because he dies before this happened, but he did say you can't use the working class to obtain power anymore. So what did the left do? The, the heirs to Gramsci in the 50s and 60s and 70s went out there and they found in the university system, oh, we'll just start dividing people based on race, based on gender, based on things that don't even exist yet or a tiny, tiny fragment, fragment of society. So we're going to divide people based on gender identity. We're going to divide people based on personality behaviors. We're going to divide people based on sexual orientation. You said it best that there's, there's only a handful of things now that the left wants to know when they look at you, what's your gender, yeah. what's your sexual orientation, what's your, what was it? What's your, your class? That's still one of yeah. them that they pay token, uh, um, homage to. And, and when, when you look at these other mechanisms, usually that, that are not based on, on socioeconomic status, but instead based on either biology or mental predisposition to something, what you notice is again, what I said earlier, that 
the the worse off a person is, and when I say worse off, I don't necessarily mean that they're evil or bad. I, sometimes it could be that there's just something wrong with them or that they're suffering from something. Yeah. But the, the further detached from reality that somebody is, the more the left lavishes praise on them. And the reason why is because they want to use those people in order to obtain political power. And by the way, when you're an outlier in those groups and you don't, Look at how the left treats you. Look at how the left treats black Americans. Look at how the left treats women. You're Look talking about you're talking about who are conservative. Who are conservative. Yeah. Look at how the left treats trans people that are conservative, which are a tiny minority. They hate those people. And the reason they hate those people is because they're not paying homage like they should be. And so I'll I'll, I'll end this segment with it it should not be surprising at all that if if when, when you look at these these trends and you look at all the studies that have been done, it shouldn't be surprising at all that it's the young, single female liberals that are the ones suffering from the most mental health crises. Because when you look at the polling, when you break down by gender and marital status, it is not married women that are voting for the left. It's not married men that are voting for the left. It's not even unmarried men that are voting for the left. Out of the four categories of, of Americans out there, again, by by gender and marital status, there's only one out of the four that gave a majority of their votes to Democrats in the last election. Overwhelming majority of their votes. Mm-hmm. So much so that it almost canceled out the other three. And it was unmarried, single women. Mm-hmm. Can I, can Let, I, uh, there, there is sort of an aspect of this that, um, uh, okay, so first of all, let me just say, I'm not trying to, this is not a cut and dry issue. And there are so many factors at play. And I don't necessarily think that just one factor has caused all of this. What I think is we've kind of got a perfect storm in this situation. You have, you have certain, um, factors to consider from academia. You have factors to consider from the media social media, you have factors to consider with the economy and, and, you know, just, uh, where, where mental health is in general, what's being pushed. There are so many factors, even our food. There are factors with, we are consuming things that are chemicals now in place of real food. I mean, there's a lot of over medicated. There's so many factors that I just don't think we can point to one thing and say, this is the main problem. However, um, I do think within um, my my experience within the psychiatric sort of well well counselors and things like that is they're always trying to identify your trauma. They're always trying to identify what the source of your trauma is, and for some reason, it's always your parents' fault. Your parents did it. It's almost like we need to find out where to place this blame. And I feel like there's this little piece of placing all of that blame that that causes this to become sort of an activist playground because we're placing the blame on the parents or we're placing that you know it's one of the reasons why schools don't want to notify their parents because parents are dangerous to these poor kids and and so I, I I look at this and I go there is this blame placing that I feel is uh really dangerous um I understand if you're trying to identify where where this piece of you broke somewhere along the line and this bad trauma happened and that kind of thing. But I think we have this push now 
to blame your parents or blame your sibling or blame. And, and, and if you look back, like you could, you could say, well, mom, I'll never forget my, my, my brother once told my mom, mom, you didn't spank me enough. I think that's where all my problems are coming from. <laughs> and, and my mom's like, what? <laughs> but, um, that was a little on the other side of what most people say, oh, mom, you were just a little too mean to me. And so therefore blah, blah, blah. But I do think that blaming everybody else for your problems is kind of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there is a point where no matter what happened to you as a child, and I understand there's certain things that cause hardwiring in your mind yeah. during those really formidable years, which is one of the reasons why we don't like the whole gender ideology on children, mm-hmm. because their brain is is developing right now and you're breaking part of it. But I, I, I think that, you know, there's something here there, you know, with, the, with all of this and, and that whole, Oh, when, before I, the time before you were 18 is, is super formidable. However, formative. Uh, what's that? Formative. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I said the wrong word. Sorry. But as you grow up, I mean, I know people that are in their eighties who have trauma from when they were like eight that caused them to be how they are in their eighties. Like I look at this and go, wait a minute. I don't want to be, I don't want whatever happened to me when I was five or six to be the reason I suck as a human being the rest of my life. At some point it's on me to choose and decide who I'm going to be for the rest of my life. It's the same reason why like me personally, as a woman, we all know hormones are really, really strong when it's, when it's about to be that time of the month, it, everybody's irritating, right? (laughs) But there's a por- portion of me that goes, well, it's it's not their fault that my hormones are doing this. So I take a step back and go, okay, Tina, are you really being reasonable? And I almost wonder, like, do people not have the ability to just pull back from themselves and go, I'm kind of being crazy right now. I, I think I'm going to stop doing that. Are there, do people not, people can't do that? There's some people that really struggle with it. <laughs> and, and now one, and again, when, when society reinforces that it's okay to do that or so, so again, there's, there's a transition. It's the whole idea of the overcorrection, right? It's the idea that this is not acceptable and you shouldn't behave in this way because you know, it, it's wrong and it's bad for society. And it's bad for you. And then it's like, well, look, we need to be a little bit more sympathetic to the fact that people have gone through stuff. And then that moves into, you know, Hey, it's okay. If you're dealing with this, it's okay. If this is a thing, then it goes into, well, this is a key component of your identity. Then it goes to a, Oh, and by the way, because if it's a key component of your identity, identity, all of society must now accommodate you. Right. And that's where it gets really dangerous. And I would say that's kind of where we're at right now is this idea be in, and the reason why it's dangerous is not just for society as a whole, it's dangerous and it's bad for that individual because it essentially now makes it a core component of their identity that they can't overcome or that they might lose something beneficial if they overcome it. And now all the decisions are kind of taken out of their hands. And, and so you know, again, it, it's bad enough to make someone feel helpless as if everything is happening to them and they can't do anything about it. It's an extra step of disastrous to then go to tell that person that, and the thing that you have is such a core component of your identity that we're going to now elevate you within society. Well, now you can't get rid of the thing, right? So let's, let's watch the right. We got a, we got a little bit more to go on this. Let's watch, uh, let's watch on this. We're already at almost at two hours. So go ahead. Or we indulge cluster B style pathologies the more we replicate them in our institutions. But rather than reverse course, university administrators have only leaned further into this broken model. Students are told that they are always under attack, 
that their safety is always threatened. And rather than strengthen them for meeting these challenges, administrators fight to sanitize the campus environment and shut down any speech deemed harmful or offensive. This is the perfect recipe for enabling and encouraging Cluster B-style narcissism and hysteria. Scenes and sentiments like these have become ubiquitous, and they work. I'm uncomfortable because this event is tearing at the fabric of this community that I care about. As we saw recently at Stanford Law School, the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion, working in a codependent manner with hyperventilating students, disrupted the speech of a federal judge. The Dean accused the judge of causing harm and making her uncomfortable. This is all it takes to justify the mob. It's cluster B-powered pathocracy in action. Pause. Like they're fanning the Pause flames. It's like, I, they, I, it's like they take something that's broken in somebody, genuinely broken in something, somebody, and then they exploit that problem. Weaponize it. And they fan the flames and they aim it at what they want. So this person is a ticking time bomb. And I'm going to turn them toward this thing that I don't like. And I'm going to make them not like it too. And I'm going to fan these flames and and they're just going to go off. Well, the, I, I find this I find this part fascinating as well. Whenever it's the, you're tearing apart the fabric and, and you're making me uncomfortable. I like to look back at like, oh, you are also tearing apart the fabric and making me uncomfortable. You're not allowed to do that. I'm the only one allowed to be uncomfortable. Your like, feelings aren't valid because you're a cisgendered white heterosexual male. And that's what it comes down to. It's like, this is absurdity because you're now creating a condition where you and I cannot have a, a reasonable discussion based off of logic and evidence and facts and agreed upon definitions of words. And so all that's left is I'm supposed to shut up anytime you feel uncomfortable. Well, you're setting up a society. Again, you want to talk about oppressor and oppressed telling someone you're not allowed to have thoughts or opinions or to at least verbalize them, or we're going to shut you down and we're going to use the force of our institution to shut you down. You're the one fostering an environment where there is no room for civil discourse or civil disagreement. It's we control the power and we're going to use it to punish you. Well, if that's, a, that is a zero sum game. If you're telling everybody we're on this side, you're on that side, there is no coexistence. You will submit or else the other side is going to come to the conclusion that, well, if this is the way the game is played, time to start playing it, baby. Exactly. That, that's why you're going to see a, I mean, you're already starting to see it. You're seeing a, a, a backlash form where increasingly the right is going to say, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not fear. It's disgust. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's go in and watch the rest of this. This says the explosion of pathologies for the audio uh, audience. The cluster B pathologies have a remarkable power of transmission. And like a pathogen leaking from a lab, they've broken containment and are spreading through the rest of society. The messaging of our major corporations is looking more and more like the celebration of disorder, whether it's attempting to normalize gender dysphoria or rewriting the standards of health and beauty. Social media has only accelerated these trends. Sites like TikTok have become a breeding ground for mental illness especially in teenage girls who mimic the cluster B behaviors they see online and have seen skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression in the real world too. The sudden explosion of transgenderism follows the same line of development. Transgender individuals are 30 times more likely to suffer from the cluster B personality disorders compared to the general population. And more than 50% of mothers with gender dysphoric boys suffer from borderline personality disorder a remarkable transmission of psychopathology. 
Much of the recent left-wing violence has also taken on the cast of the Cluster B disorders. The George Floyd riots were remarkable in part for their psychological tone. Wild emotional displays, narcissistic identity rituals, and victimology manifested in the streets. The antisocial personalities have learned how to wield left-wing ideology in order to justify their violence and terror. As psychologists have long known, there is a long-established link between violent personalities and left-wing authoritarianism. The mugshots of Antifa foot soldiers drive home the point. These are not mentally well people. They are the hideous face of antisocial violence, the enforcement arm of the modern left, the political vanguard of our Cluster B society. And they will not stop until they've transformed the world in their own image. This is called Enter the Longhouse. This is a new Anonymous right-wing critics have taken to calling this strange new Cluster B regime the Longhouse, a matriarchal form of society that privileges the values of care, concern, and feminine social strategies. In an essay for the magazine First Things, the pseudonymous writer Lomez explains that women now outnumber men in professional managerial roles and vastly outnumber men in human resource departments which have outsized influence on professional and cultural norms. The left, too, is now acknowledging the emergence of the Longhouse. In her presidential campaign, Hillary Clinton confidently declared that the future is female. And in an essay for The Atlantic, Hannah Rosen heralded this change with an essay titled The End of Men. Both were correct, but while some are celebrating this shift, our female future is not an unalloyed good. Despite what we're told, biological sex differences are real, and an imbalance between the two has negative effects for everyone. Taken too far, overly feminized leadership produces exactly the kind of Cluster B society we're living in today. One in which identity is rewarded over merit, in which victimhood is prioritized over competence, in which antisocial behavior goes unchecked, in which moral narcissism is the currency of the realm. The Cluster B society is upon us, and we must find a way out. We must find a way to restore balance, to restore order, to restore sanity, because if we don't, we are resigned to a world gone mad. If you want a picture of that future, imagine this person screaming in your face forever. That's the famous, uh, the famous scream from, I think, when Trump got elected, right? That, that's a 1984 reference right there. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine a boot stamping on the human face forever. Um, I, I I mean, the end there, I, I loved the, the, the last part of this video probably more than anything else because I think it encapsulates a lot of what I was trying to bring up earlier and, and probably, <laughs> not even probably, in better language than I think I was using. Um, it's it's become so bad that I think it's going to end in one of two ways. Either these people actually win out and we just continue to descend into madness with it continually getting worse and worse and worse. Or eventually you get a backlash that is so bad that it would make people at this table be uncomfortable. Because imagine when, when eventually... Remember, Nick, when you said um, this uh, um, uh, DEI person at, what was it? I think Stanford that was shouting down the yeah. the judge and, you know, said, you know, well, you're making people feel uncomfortable. And then you brought up like, well, why, um, you know, why is you feeling uncomfortable more important? I mean, you saying this is making me feel uncomfortable. The problem is, is that that strategy to push back doesn't usually work because no. conservatives don't think that way. Mm -hmm. 
They, they usually don't because conservatives would look at this and, and their response would not be, well, you're making me feel uncomfortable. Their response would be, this is absurd. Yeah. Let me explain why this is absurd. And that never works. And so eventually conservatives keep losing this argument in the face of absolute absurdity over and over and over again until eventually the right realize, it comes to the conclusion that there is no negotiation to be had with these people. It's simply about obtaining political power. And if, again, if it's all about oppressive power structures, I'm sure as hell not going to be oppressed. Yeah. And that's the negative backlash. And I don't just mean that in a political sense. Imagine what would happen in a society where the right decides we're, we're, the discussion's done. And, and we're not going to be having it anymore. And by the way, you're not going to be controlling us yeah. because when that happens, it's not just the political side of, of, you know, the right wing backlash that I think can worry some people think about the social side. Some of the legitimate issues that get brought up with things like mental health might be actually re-stigmatized in an even worse way than before, because what happens when the right takes power and decides you know what? These were basically vehicles, mechanisms through which the left was able to drag society into almost the, you know, the the, the abyss of utter madness. We're not going to tolerate that anymore. And suddenly things that were legitimate points to bring up, but had been abused by the left in order to obtain political power become re-stigmatized because, you know, we need to bar the gates again, because if they, if it's a Pandora's box, if it ever opens again, we might return back to this descent into madness. Well, it's where you, we, we've been told so many times. So the, the whole idea of the slippery slope fallacy, the slippery slope fallacy is, is a term within formal logic where it's an informal fallacy, but essentially what you're doing is you're suggesting that because one thing happens, then something else will, will happen in a, in a kind of a domino effect. Now the, the inappropriate the, the inappropriate use of, of slippery slope is one where you, you assign, uh, you basically suggest that things will happen because something else happened, but it, it's not unreasonable. In fact, it's a form of rational inference, which is kind of sometimes called considered the fourth law of logic that, you know, we can use empirical evidence and we can use logic to determine if this happens, then this will happen. Then this may happen. Then this may happen. And you're absolutely right. We, you run into a problem where people start associating because something was weaponized in a particular way, people will now associate the thing with the weaponization, right? And, and that's, that's dangerous in and of itself because you still got to deal with the thing. Um, the problem is, is that when it is weaponized in a particular way, it now becomes associated with the negative manifestation or outworking or use of the thing you're and, seeing it with feminism, yeah. right? What, what's what the right increasingly, especially online is having a massive backlash against feminism and not just modern third or fourth wave feminism. Increasingly it's second and even first wave feminism. Oh, and the ones that have the biggest problem with it are actually women, women on the right. Yeah. We, we're the one, <laughs> we are the ones kind of spearheading the anti-feminist uh, uh, stuff now because the feminism has, has become anti-woman. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you, you see this as well. There there's, let's get to this. Yeah, article. So what do we do about yeah. everything sucks? The world's going <laughs> to hell. Everybody's gone crazy. Whole nations can go insane, Nick. So yeah. how do we, well, you found, we you found that you problem? found this article from American affairs journal called how to understand the well-being gap between liberals and conservatives. So go ahead and take us through kind of the key points. Of yeah. That. So in fact, actually I want to pull it up on my end too. So that way I can, I can kind of go, I'm not going to go through the whole entire thing, obviously, but um, this is a fantastic, fantastic article that explains some of the problems that we were talking about at the beginning of this show. Why is the data 
so obviously clear that it, it's a strong correlation between being on the left, being a woman and being young are the three things that are, that make you more likely to be suffering from mental illness mm-hmm. more than anything else. Those three things and particularly liberal political views that and being a woman and, and what, what, what this article is trying to do is explain why this is the case. And there's, there's some really interesting data here. I, again, I'm not going to get into the entire thing, but Hamilton, if you start to scroll down, um, just scroll down slowly and I'll tell you when to stop. Basically, it's going through some of the data that we talked about before. And there's a, um, in fact, some of the um, some of the data that's in here, actually, Hamilton, if you go down a little bit more, it talks about how conservatives are happier than liberals. And then it continues to go. Um, again, I highly recommend that that anybody take a look we'll at this when a, they get the we'll put it in the when they get the chance. If you keep going, Hamilton, um, there's a chapter here titled "Liberals are far more likely to be depressed, anxious, or otherwise neurotic compared to conservatives." And so it talks about you know like levels of happiness, satisfaction, finding meaning in in life, and and what you're seeing is is that the further left you move on that ideological spectrum the less you see those things pop up and in their place of finding like happiness and meaning and purpose, what you're seeing in place of that is mental illnesses. And so it shows some of the graphs that we've talked about. So for example, if you scroll down just a little bit, this is the Pew research bill from 2020 that shows again, the strong three strongest correlations, liberal women and younger. Those are the three things that, that, that indicate that you're more likely to be suffering from a mental illness. And so then it says, so what's going on here? And um, the author of this article says that explaining these patterns is actually somewhat difficult, in part because social researchers lean liberal over conservative at a ratio of more than 10 to 1. As a consequence, scholars tend to spend a lot of their energy defining conservatism and Republican voting behavior in terms of deficits and pathologies or otherwise blaming the political right for unfortunate states of affairs. As we've seen, even the, the conservative advantage in happiness has been broadly defined as pathological in the literature. Apparently, that's the problem. Conservatives yeah. are too happy. That's the problem, according to these people. Portrayed as an outgrowth of privilege, system justification, and a lack of awareness or empathy. If only we truly understood the problem, we'd be a lot more miserable. We'd be miserable too, yeah. yeah. In a scholarly environment where well-being is defined in pathological terms when experienced by conservatives, one should not be surprised that there is comparatively little work exploring how and to what extent liberal ideology may contribute to unfortunate patterns of contagion or behavior. Cognition or behavior. Or, or sorry, sorry, cognition or behavior or adverse states of affairs. Yet there are some plausible hypotheses that have been com- uh, that have compelling empirical support. Basically, then they start explaining, okay, so what could be causing this problem? And if you go to the next paragraph after this, this is the part that I really want Nick's take on. And yeah. potentially Tina and Hamilton as well. Did the Great Awakening significantly exacerbate psychological distress in liberals? This is a fantastic paragraph where at the um, near the bottom here, um, what they end up concluding is Hamilton, if you scroll down, what they end up concluding after this graph is really, really striking. The main, I want your guys' take on this. The main difference across ideological lines is that liberals are more likely to seek out diagnoses even when they have moderate to low symptoms of poor mental health, whereas others do not. That gets to Brian Betts' point yeah. that he was trying to make earlier. But then there's some problems that pop up with this. The moral culture of many left spaces may play an important role in driving these patterns. 
Some sociologists have argued that many liberal, affluent, highly educated spaces, one increasingly gains moral status through association with formally stigmatized identities, for instance, by identifying as a racial, ethnic, or religious minority, a sexual minority, or as a person with a mental or physical disability. Unwellness can even be monetized, uh, can even be a monetizable asset in contemporary left-wing spaces. As one social media influencer recently put it, there absolutely is a concentrated effort to really capitalize on mental illness and particularly on young women's mental illnesses. It's really, it's a, uh, it's a very marketable commodity right now. Consequently, perverse incentive structures in certain liberal spaces may uh, may push many to seek out diagnoses. This gets to Brian Betts. Why are they going to seek these diagnoses? Well, they say that the and basically there's a perverse incentive structure in liberal leaning spaces. We call them the Leviathan or the cathedral. Again, the arts, media, acad- academia, increasingly corporate America as well. These spaces encourage people to seek out diagnoses even when they're not experiencing any sort of severe symptoms whatsoever. Others who are not part of that moral culture would feel less pressure or eagerness to get themselves classified as disabled. This may help to explain the partisan gap in reported mental illnesses. You guys want any take on that? Yeah, I, I mean, to me, this seems like to me this seems like a fairly logical regression. Um, if you are going to now, let, let's be as let's be as again. Let's be as generous as we possibly can be with respect to the overall ideology here. Let's say you're the sort of person that is deeply empathetic. You're deeply sympathetic. You, you want their justice is obviously something that is, is noble and good to fight for. Um, and so you, you see, you see this mechanism, this, this activist mechanism as a way um, to adjudicate these problems, to adjudicate these disparities. Um, but the ideology is, is rooted in a worldview, which essentially says that everyone fits into an oppressor or an oppressed status. And if you are someone <laughs> that, that by the nature, by the virtue of your skin color, by the virtue of your gender, by the virtue of who you're attracted to automatically puts you in the oppressor category, right? You are the beneficiary of, of evil, systemically racist, patriarchal systems, which have benefited you. Well, if you're, if you're someone that is really, really sensitive to that and, and certainly don't want to be categorized in that way, um, combined with no real firm grounding in your own sense of identity, your own sense of purpose, your own sense of history or past or, or strong connections, obviously this is going to be something where you, you feel like you are now at a cultural deficit. You, you are a cultural deficit within society. You certainly don't want to feel like you're oppressing anybody. You certainly don't want to be the beneficiary of ill-gotten gains or an oppressive system. And so the question in your mind that the problem that you now have to solve is, how do I not be that person? Well, and here's this movement <laughs> that essentially says, well, the only way you can not be that person is you have to fit into one of these categories, or at the very least, you have to be an ally. But the problem is, is that even as an ally, that's not sufficient, right? You're still not one of the good guys. You have to be a member. Yeah. You have to, and, mm-hmm. and one nice way to make yourself a member is to join LBGTQIA XYZ. It's a very easy way to join it because it doesn't require necessarily any major shift. In fact, shift the numbers, the numbers bear that out. Like Christian, weren't you telling us about, um, there's like a certain number of, of girls or young women who identify as being like bisexual or something. Are you the one? Oh, that, yeah, yeah. There's a but huge they number. But have never had 
a same sex uh, experience at all, um, but they identify as bisexual. Yeah. Yes. Right? And, and, and it's, it's I, many of them, I don't even think realize it, but it's, it's an attempt to insert yourself into that victimhood status in order to, to deal with some of these mental health problems that, that a lot of these liberal spaces are basically implicitly pushing on people. But what I find so fascinating in the data here, and this gets into what do you do about it? And why why if the, why are things getting worse rather than better right now? Hamilton, if you scroll down just yeah, a little it, bit because, more. Because here's the other thing that's that needs to be brought up. Over over the last several years, the the liberal the, the left-wing progressive mindset, um, what you might even call those those more on the woke mindset, they are not they are in the ascendancy. They, they have increasingly been able to get what they want with respect to professional, academic, and social norms. Mm -hmm. And yet it is not making them happier. No. And it's not just white liberals or th that are, that are suffering from this. In fact, it, it, this article goes on to say, and again, I can't re recommend this enough. It goes on to say that, however, the ideological gap in mental health is not purely something that manifests among whites. Non-white liberals are also significantly more likely to report mental illnesses than non-white moderates or conservatives of any stripe. In fact, there are reasons to suspect that certain strands of liberal ideology may exert uniquely pernicious effects among women and people of color. And this is the huge part. Many left-wing circles, or sorry, in many left circles, great efforts are made to sensitize everyone to historical and ongoing bias and discrimination. Women and minorities are told to attribute negative outcomes in their lives to racism or sexism. They are encouraged to interpret ambiguous encounters or situations uncharitably, such as manifestations of racism, sexism, homophobia, etc. These tendencies likely undermine the well-being of the very populations they are supposed to help. And then near the bottom of this uh, segment, um, it goes on to to say that, of course, it's possible that these differences in perceived harassment and discrimination are based on objective realities. For instance, men in liberal spaces could be more likely to be misogynistic and uh, practice than men in other contexts. However, it seems more likely that the ideological perception gap in sexual harassment and discrimination is mostly a product of heightened sensitivity among liberal women and highly educated liberal women in particular compared to other Americans. And then it basically says that, you know, so, so like, what is is causing this problem and then it says for people of color getting educated in america is to be <laughs> is to basically be relentlessly crudged uh, um with be cudgeled relentlessly cudgeled relentlessly with messages about how oppressed and exploited and powerless we are and how white people need to get it together and change this but probably never will narratives like these grew especially pronounced in the post 2011 great awakening the internalization of these messages may contribute to the observed ideological gaps and distress among women and people of color. And then here's where the part about, in fact, somebody in chat brought up um, CBT, which is co um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. This is where the, the heart of the yeah, problem th this gets is, in. This, part, this is the part, I'll tell you what, if, if anybody has been like drifting off a little bit. <laughs> this is the most important part. This, this part right here is very significant. Even when minorities don't directly suffer from anxiety or depression, they regularly suffer because these disorder because of these disorders nonetheless. Studies have found that the challenges in dealing with white liberal peers and their idiosyncratic neuroses and dispositions may be a key source of burnout for minorities in progressive spaces. 
And then it goes on to say that, you know, psychologists and many um, uh, have argued that many strains of liberal ideology fashionable among highly educated and relatively affluent Americans function in practice as a reverse form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, CBT. so here, here it is. Let's get in. Let's get into this. So cognitive behavioral therapy encourages people to avoid global labeling and black and white or zero sum thinking. It pushes people to abstain from hyperbole and catastrophizing or filtering out the good while highlighting the bad. CBT encourages people to resist emotional reasoning, jumping to conclusions, mind reading, and uncharitable motive attribution. It tells adherents not to make strong assumptions about what others should do or feel or how the world should be. Instead, Patients are encouraged to meet the world as it is and to engage the actual over the ideal. CBT instructs people to look for solutions to problems rather than focusing inordinately on who to blame and punish. It tells patients to focus on controlling what they can in the present rather than ruminating on misfortunes of the past or worrying about the futures that may not come to pass. It encourages people to see themselves as resilient and capable rather than weak, vulnerable, helpless, or damaged. It is easy to see how popular strains of liberal thinking basically invert this guidance, likely to the detriment of adherence. So again, the whole purpose, the whole purpose of cognitive behavioral therapy is, look, bad things happen. Like Thomas Sowell, <laughs> Thomas Sowell would, would basically categorize this as something of the vision of the, uh, or the restrained vision or the constrained vision. The idea that the world's not perfect, bad things happen. It's not good that those bad things happen. It, it may be unjust that those things happen to you, but there are things that you can do about it to be able to, con there are things within your environment that you can control to improve your situation and that nothing good is going to come from doing nothing, but automatically assuming that everyone is out to get you or that everyone owes you something, right? And then to be able to fight through that. And, and what they've seen with CBT is they've seen incredible results with the people that are, are actually willing to listen to it and apply it. But you see some of the things here. I want to point out one that is just the inverse of what woke ideology tends to tell us. And that is the part where, here we go. It tells adherents to not make strong assumptions about what others should do or feel or how they should be. Instead, patients are encouraged to meet the world as it is, to engage in the actual over the ideal. The other part that I really like here is CBT encourages people to resist emotional reasoning. Think of that as like lived experience and the narrative of the oppressed. Jumping to conclusions, mind reading, or uncharitable motive of attribution. You see this all the time. Buckley Buckley used to say this, we think they're wrong. They think we're evil. And, and we see this all the time in these interactions where we will, we will, I, I'm the, I'm the subcommittee chairman for the committee that handles all of the gun legislation in Virginia. As you can imagine, we have some very long nights hearing legislation and I have a rule that if anybody wants to come and testify, if a citizen wants to come and testify, we are going to give them the opportunity to testify and share their experiences. It is amazing how many times I have to remind legislators that when they get up, they should make their argument. They should present their evidence. They should do so passionately for what they want. But one of the things I, I, I don't tolerate as a subcommittee chair is automatically assigning evil motivations to anybody that disagrees with you. I said, we're not going to do that. And most of the delegates will get up and will try to appreciate that and follow it and, and do it fairly well. I've had, I've had 
Others that have a real problem with that, they automatically get up and say, well, it's just a shame that they're more concerned about this industry than they are about dead children. I'm like, I'm going to stop you right there, right? Is that the only motivation you can possibly imagine? Because if it is, I have a question. Why did you vote against all of the bills that we had that would have increased the penalties for engaging in violent actions? Should I then come to the conclusion that you don't care about dead children or people that were hurt or abused or victimized by the criminals you don't want to put in jail longer? Is that the only possible justification that I could come up with your motivation? Well, no. Good. Don't do it to other people. Continue. Like, I'm so tired of that. Like, if if that's the game that's going to be played, I can play it too, and I can play it rather well. I choose not to because I would much prefer that we be able to engage in civil discourse. But the problem that I have with this is that, again, the great awakening, and we've already defined what woke is here, so nobody can claim that we haven't. It does the exact opposite. You're supposed to assume, if you're in the oppressor class, you're supposed to assume that almost the totality of your circumstances or environment was determined by factors completely outside of your control who are all nefarious and out to get you. If you are someone that is experiencing good things, but you're in the oppressor category, well, then that's clearly not because of any of your actions, your innovation, your insight, your work ethic. It is entirely chalked up to privilege of a patriarchal and oppressive system, which you benefit from. In fact, the fact that you're happy is a mark against you. Nick, I can't think of anything more self-destructive. And and again, forget about how destructive it is for people that they're targeting. It is even more destructive for the people that they claim to be helping. And I'll tell you why. Because when they accuse me of that, I look at them and say, okay, we'll see how that works out for you. And then I carry on doing what I know works. But the people that actually buy into this ideology, they're the ones that wake up 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now realizing that they were lied to and potentially used as political pawns by the more nefarious and narcissistic, and in the other day just misled by people that were just as misled as they were. I Nick, there's another, Hamilton, could you scroll down just a little bit more? There's another thing that I want you to read, at least the beginning of, and, and th- this maybe can get us into the conclusion here, because this par- couple paragraphs here, we've talked about this before, quite frankly, in the right-wing backlash episode. We've talked about it a little bit in this episode. And basically, the the title of this paragraph is, Could the Great Awakening Have Exacerbated Distress Among Conservatives Too? I would love for you to read this because I want your take on this. Just just start reading this. Oh, okay. I I was going to ask you to read it, but if you want me to read it. No, no, I'll read it. So you want to start at the top? Yep. All right. The first figure above from Gimbroni et al. showed a dramatic rise in depression among liberal teens starting in 2012. However, there was also a rise among conservatives that started a couple years later and tapered off around 2017. The Great Awakening may have played an important role in the rise of depression among liberals, but could it have plausibly influenced conservatives as well? Again, The answer is yes. Insofar as liberal peers became much more aggressive after 2011 in villainizing, suppressing, and punishing anyone who disagreed with them on contentious cultural issues, this likely had a pernicious effect on conservative teens too. Being branded as a racist, sexist, homophobe, etc., and treated as a moral monster can have major deleterious effects on one's well-being. However, attempts by external parties to shame people into compliance typically generate resistance, backlash, and deviance over the longer term. 
What we might expect to see then is a dramatic increase in negative effect among conservatives in the early years of the awakening as a result of being more aggressively mocked, derided, censored, and purged, followed by a leveling off or decline as right-aligned Americans increasingly dismiss and resist progressive attempts to characterize them as evil people. On this model, liberals would move first with the conservative increase in negative emotionally emerging as a reaction to shifts in liberal discourse and behaviors. However, there should be a disjunctive over time because the prevailing liberal ideologies would continue to exert a powerful influence over the mental state of liberals, but would come to exercise diminishing influence over conservatives. These patterns are, in fact, reflected in the data. There are, of course, many other factors at play in the observed trends after 2020, excuse me, after 2010. From evolving socioeconomic conditions for various uh, subsets of the population, which I explain in my forthcoming book, play an important role in the timing of great awakenings, to technological, technological changes and beyond. However, the different ways liberals and conservatives interpret the world and respond to adversity may also play an important role in the ideological polarization and subjective well-being independent of these other changes. So what are your th I mean, that second and third paragraph about how at first conservatives move in, in this mental illness direction as well, yeah. in response to the fact that they're constantly being, quote unquote, aggressively mocked, derided, censored, and purged. And then eventually, remember when I said earlier that like a conservative will not counter usually with, well, you're making me feel unsafe and no. uncomfortable too. Does that matter? No. Because conservatives don't think that way. They just intrinsically don't think that way. And so- over time, the response from the conservative is, I'm not evil. I'm not, I'm not a bigot. I'm not racist. I'm not any of these things. Why are you treating me like I'm a bad person just because I disagree? And then you get shouted down and attacked and, and excluded and, and treated like you're evil anyway. And so eventually the response from the conservative is, I'm, I'm done being shamed by you on the left. Yes. And then the backlash kicks in where it's, to, to scroll up just a little bit, Hamilton, where it says that, however, attempts by external parties to shame people into compliance typically generate resistance, backlash, and deviance over the longer term. Yeah. This is why you're seeing a rise of people on the right saying, take all rights away from women. This is why you're seeing a rise of people on the right saying, yeah, you know, we, we do need a political strongman. We do need a Caesar. Mm -hmm. like, like the people on the right are increasingly becoming reactionaries in a bad way. It's a really bad manifestation. Because yeah. they're responding to all of this reverse CBT stuff that the left is pushing through the great awakening at first, the response, and you saw this at first in like, like 2014 to 2017 or so you saw maybe even 2018, you saw people on the right respond with, what are you talking about? I'm not, I don't know why you're so hostile towards me. Well, I, the, I don't believe in this or the that. The initial conservative response to an accusation is, or, or the, I shouldn't say conservative. I, I think most people, the initial response to an accusation is introspection. It, it, it's either disbelief. I didn't do that or, okay. And, and if, if all of a sudden it's something a little bit esoteric, like the, the, you know, the consequences of past actions of previous generations, we're willing to consider like, okay, is, is this, is this a factor? The problem comes when all of a sudden we we're able to present evidence that I don't think this is the factor that you think it is. And instead the debate goes from academic or, or even conversational into openly hostile. And well, that makes you a bigot. See you, you're any sort of resistance, any sort of dissent to my, 
my position is proof of my position. Well, if you're going to engage in that again, you've taken out the possibility of logical discourse and civil disagreement because there's no longer a shared mechanism for where we can adjudicate differences. Well, if you take out all civil mechanisms of adjudicating differences to include the final one, which is you do you and I'll do me. Well, then what you're left with is one side's going to rule the other. And that's a very, very dangerous proposition. But when I look at the sort of people pushing the the things that I see within this ideology, I don't see them giving me an alternative because they want to control, because they want to centralize political control and because they want to then control that centralized uh, political power. You're not even giving me a place to escape. It used to be that, okay, you want to do that in California, final move to Florida, But what we're finding now is that they don't even want you to have that option because what you believe is evil and corrosive and therefore it has to be stamped out. And again, if we can't even agree at the very least to leave each other alone, well then yeah, you're the one embracing a political ideology that will, that will brook no dissent. And then at some point, well, yeah, that you're going to meet a head off at that point. This is how you get a situation where five to 10 years ago, if the left accused somebody on the right of being quote unquote transphobic, the response from the person on the right would be, I'm not transphobic. Yeah. That's how you, that's how you go from that to today. When the left says that the right is like, no, 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 no it's not phobia. It's not fear. It's disgust. And it's not denying it anymore. In fact, it's doubling down increasingly conservatives. It the, used the to numbers be that, show that the stats show that too. Yeah, happening. and it, it used to be that the worst thing you could do in politics is accuse your opponent of being a racist. Yeah, and now when the right gets accused of being a racist, they just shrug it off. They're like, "Who who cares what these people have to say about yeah. me? They're all a bunch of deranged lunatics. Uh-huh. I have no reason to care what they what they believe of me. I'm going to keep doing what I'm going to keep doing. And in fact, actually, now I'm going to be more likely to to act in a certain way to like basically piss these people off." Because they hate me and they think I'm evil. They're my enemy. And at that point, you you don't have a stable society anymore when you have half the country view and the other half is the enemy. Remember, for the longest time, it was the left viewed the right as evil and the right viewed the left as just simply wrong. Well, increasingly, the right is now viewing the left as evil as well. Yeah. No, I... I Finally. Well, I think that so my my <laughs> problem my problem with that and look I, we've we've gone I think we've gone through all the subject matter that we wanted to put up so let kind of close this out. Here's what I was hoping we would achieve by by going through this. I, I think Christopher Rufo is is bringing up an interesting point with the idea of a, the cluster B society. I think there is something to be said within this article from American Affairs Journal. Um, dot org on, on the idea of whether or not certain ideologies, certain political ideologies are actually leading to an increase in mental illness, which is also leading to an increase in some of these personality disorders. Again, making a distinction between the two. The thing that makes sense to me is that, again, when you tell an entire group of people, when, when you essentially eliminate any real concept of meritocracy outside of this idea of your intersectional score, how many things can I, how many things can I chalk up with respect to mental illness, with respect to sexual preference, with respect to racial identity, with respect to trauma that I've experienced in the past? How many of these things can I, can I create as a core component of my identity, not just challenges that I might've had to overcome, but a core component of my identity. Whenever you reach a point in a society where a significant portion of the population, especially in those most influential elements of of civilization, elevate the problems and challenges over the solutions or even the ability to take personal responsibility and achieve a better end state, 
you're, you're headed toward a real problem. The issue that is going to be fascinating to see over time is whether or not they're actually going to be able to enforce this. And, and the reason I say that is because when we look at old Marxist ideology, when you look at the, the old school communists, they weren't embracing this. They still had a healthy appreciation for what we might have called traditional masculinity or traditional femininity. They, they still had an appreciation. They, they wouldn't have called the things that are currently being called toxic masculinity toxic. And so they were able to actually fight and attempt to impose and were very successful in imposing their ideology and their worldview on, on other people. This one almost entirely relies on the sort of people that they can't stand in order to be able to enforce it. And I don't know where that leaves them eventually when it comes to the implementation of the more absurd forms of this ideology. But what I do see recurring over and over again is that the people that seem to be the hurt the most by this are not conservatives. It's liberals. And it's the people that liberals are trying to help or at least claim that they're trying to help. And, and I, I think we should at least allow some good faith argument to say that some of them probably genuinely do. They don't want to be thought of as oppressors and they do want to help people that they honestly believe are oppressed. But the sort of ideology in the movement that is being used, I don't think, I think the evidence seems to be somewhat overwhelming that it is leading to increased mental illness and increased personality disorders. And as Tina said so eloquently at one point, she goes, why do we call things like, why do we call it gender affirming when in reality it's dysphoria affirming? And so the real question that we have is as people that are witnessing this and believe that this is a good, maybe you don't. I, I happen to think that this is a pretty good explanation of what's going on within society right now. The real question is, what do we do about it? Now, one of the things that we didn't get a chance to really go into, but if, if you want to read more on it, um, the, the name of the doctor is Dr. Uh, Romani uh, Dervasula. And she has a whole series of articles on uh, a YouTube channel called Med Circle. And one of the things that she said that I, I actually thought was truly depressing was that treatment for cluster B personality disorders is actually doesn't have a great deal of hope for achieving the sort of positive end states we would like to see that it's actually incredibly difficult to treat. So that leads us to the question that, okay, if, if treatment is incredibly difficult, how do we prevent it? That doesn't mean you give up on the treatment, but the best solution is how do you prevent it in the first place? Well, I would argue that this goes back to the description I was using earlier from Jordan Peterson when he was describing that, look, imagine yourself as a balloon and there's a lot of, there's a lot of air going into that balloon and that can be all kinds of things. That can be trauma. That can be horrible circumstances. That can be difficulties within your life, within your marriage, within your childhood, whatever it is. And then you have your genetic predispositions. You have things that you may be a little bit more predisposed to than somebody else. And then all of a sudden that balloon fills up to a point where the weak spot breaks. And that's all of a sudden where you get these destructive personality traits, which then lead into personality disorders. So how do you prevent that? Well, obviously a, a core component of this is to try to prevent the sort of trauma, the sort of environments that, that yield that, that, that create long-term scars in your children as they're, as they're growing up during their formative years, trying to contend with all of the things that happened to them that should have never happened to them. Okay, well, what's the best way to do that? Strong mother, strong father in the household. It's the best way to deal with it. It's not a surefire way to deal with it, but it's, it's arguably the best. The other thing is we also need to understand that so many of our children, maybe it's never going to manifest in a, in a personality disorder per se, but if they're growing up in the sort of environment where mental illness and personality disorders are now elevated, now incentivized, 
then they're going to have a strong desire to fit in if the organizations and the in the institutions that we're putting them in is inundated with this. Kids respond to incentive structures just like all of us do. The difference is, is when they're children, they don't have the mental capacity to be able to accurately de- determine between those incentive structures which are good and those incentive structures which are bad. And since they don't have the ability to remove themselves, it is on the parent to be able to make the decision on when the environment has become so toxic for them that they have to be protected. So the biggest way that we fight all of this starts within the home, within how we interact with and raise our own children, the things that we protect them with or protect them from. And the good news about that is that is something that is completely within your control or largely within your control as a parent. But that is where it's going to have to start. That doesn't mean that they're, again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't still produce treatment for people that are, that are struggling with this. But Jordan Peterson was asked once on stage, how do you treat borderline personality disorder? And he immediately responded by example. And he said what he meant by that was, is that for many people that are struggling, especially with cluster B, they don't even recognize that they need treatment in many cases. But as it's been said before, you can ignore reality, but you can't ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. And eventually people get to the point where they realize that the ideologies that they've been fed, the things that they've adopted, the truth that they've embraced was a lie. But if you don't give them an alternative, if you can't then point away from the convenient lie over to the actual truth, then you don't give them anywhere to escape to. And people will hold on to the convenient lie for as long as they possibly can, unless they know there is a viable exit. And if you are conducting yourself in such a way, living in such a way, which is, is not only beneficial for you and your family, but actually acts as a beacon for people that will be looking for answers as soon as the ones they've been given fail them. If you're doing that, sometimes it's the best possible help that you can give for somebody that you know or for society in general. Because yes, some people don't want to be helped until they have no choice. And then at that point, be the sort of truth that actually acts as the alternative from the lie that has held them captive. I want to thank you very much today for joining us. Thank you for all of the comments. Thank you for the comments for people that don't always agree with us, but are able to add input from their own expertise or their own experiences. We, we find that invaluable. I, I always love it. We have a really good chat going on at the same time that we're discussing this and that we can interact with all of you for everybody that did super chats. Thank you very much for that. It really helps us to be able to continue to do the show. I want to thank you. Good ranchers again for sponsoring the show it means a lot to us and they give you a really good product. I think we got one more thing from Hamilton. There were a ton of questions that we were not able to get to today but we would love to have you go in our circle chat our community chat there propose those questions we'd love to get the discussion rolling there and that'd be really great all right once again oh i'll i'll share that article that we read yeah. through at the end too in circle as well yeah we'll also share that as well again circle is a great place a lot of the ideas that we get for our episodes comes from our, our community chat and our audience there thank you very much for joining us today and we will see you next episode